What is up, fam? Welcome back to That's the Angle. And in this interview, I'm sitting now with Sebastian Xavier. Sebastian is a really prolific photographer, not just IG, but in real life. He does really awesome boundary-pushing work that combines his passion for film with his love of fine art with the sort of like digital editing that just really takes it to this whole new level and i think that's super cool and honestly this interview is so much fun and we even talked about uh what's what's going on in china the chinese revolution right now because with with everything going on here in america it seems like the world has stopped well it really hasn't and he really opened my eyes to what exactly is going on over there and i'm not gonna lie makes me feel uh, a little grateful compared to what they're dealing with so that was just wild and it was so awesome to hear how much he cares about um everything going on over there because he is Chinese himself so yeah I really think you guys are gonna love this one photographer or not it's just one of a one of those banger episodes but also highly recommend um watching it on YouTube because now with the power of zoom and with this with this podcast going zoom based I was able to pull up some of his best photos some of my favorite photos of his and we were able to discuss them live and I just thought that was so fun and just an amazing thing to do and I can't wait to do with more artists that being said guys um, please leave a comment rating or review on iTunes or Spotify if you can do that or or subscribe on the YouTube channel that'd be even better all right guys enjoy that's the angle that's the podcast and we are joined with Sebastian Xavier what's up dude hey hello everybody <laughs> hey hey uh, coffee cheers thanks, if you're drinking thanks coffee. for having me thanks for having me well, I'm drinking water, but that will do. Hey, yeah, whatever um, works. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good to be on the show. Um, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, dude. Of course, of course. I like that jacket, and dude, it reminds me of something uh, that I was way too invested in last night. Okay. Uh, do, you with, <laughs> okay. Do, you keep, do you keep up with Takashi Six Nine at all? Like, do you even know? About Not him? really. I, I know oh. a little bit of him and how he like snitched and stuff, but. Oh. <laughs> I don't no. really know too much about him. I don't know too much about him. Why? Oh, Does he because, wear something like this or something? I mean, he wears all rainbow colors. Like, that's his thing is, like, rainbow right, hair, yeah. rainbow clothing. Okay. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. I knew well, about that. Yeah, I won't, I won't get my too... Six Nine. Well, it does because literally, <laughs> dude, 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 literally, literally last night, I spent, I, I stayed up late because he was going on Instagram Live at 11 p.m. And then he was going on live with Nicki right. Minaj, who he dropped the song with. And I was just like there waiting. And what's funny is that like everyone's beefing with him. So he like airs everyone right. out and like calls everyone snitches back and everything. And I was just like, oh, this is so good. But <laughs> yeah, but I, man, I mean, I don't really go too deep into like those things, but I have heard and um, yeah, I've got a few friends who are really into the into six nine as well. So fair enough. <laughs> do, do you keep up with like a lot of like i know you're you're in london england but like mm-hmm. is is our like music culture like dominant where you are or do you guys have like your own sort of thing that's like garage and oh, it, uk stuff like that it, it's like a good mixture it's like a good mixture because obviously like with america and like the magnifying glass we have in america um, it's pretty much like the epicenter of all Western culture in many regards. So no matter where you go, mm-hmm. American music and American like pop culture will be relevant. So even here in London, yeah, hundred percent, like it, that stuff still, you know, we still listen to American hip hop. We still listen to American music. Um, 
maybe not like you know people might not know like the beef or like the in-depth you know yeah. stuff about yeah. like certain people but it's still very much relevant and like it'll probably be you know you you ask the fourth person and they'll know everything about it so like yeah it's still it's still very much part of a part of culture here in london oh yeah because i've noticed that a lot of your culture is starting to come over here now like music wise at least it's something that's really big like all of the like your rap styles uh, yeah like what's, grime what's, yeah grime and like drill and shit mm -hmm. like that like dude mm -hmm. like yeah it's like pop up in like drake's albums and it's popping mm -hmm. up in like different mm -hmm. influences dude it's so sick yep. man hey man uh, i mean like here's the thing obviously as like a third culture kid i mean i only moved to london or the uk uh for university a couple years ago and prior to that i was in hong kong oh, wow. but um when i first moved to the uk and i first listened to like grime and drill i was like yo i'm not sure if i'm into this <laughs> like i'm not because <laughs> i like that that was um 2014 or so so like a couple years back oh my god that was six years ago holy crap that's Whoa. crazy to think about but yeah <laughs> that's crazy to think about but when i first moved here um i was still very into like indie pop and kind of like you know alternative rock stuff and uh, a few of my flatmates at uni they started like playing grime and slowly but surely i was like yo this is kind of this is kind of sick okay right? it's kind of like, hard yeah because like the bpm and like the pace and everything's like so fast and like with drill because grime grime and drill are quite different as well and with mm -hmm. drill specifically it's quite lots of people say it's very violent and it's very rude and i do get that because it is yeah. but at the same time like it just sounds sick because like it's the tough. whole song is just yeah it's tough and it's it's a very difficult thing to get into but once you're in it you love it um and it's still very much part of like the east london kind of like uh it's it's very much kind of synonymous with um um like lower class kind of like rising up against you know totalitarianism and stuff it, it's sick it's a it's a great story and you know lots lots of people have things that get, have things to say about it and how violent it is but i think it's cool i mean it sounds like like american rap music like it started off very violent game related exactly, exactly. The police and, shit, exactly. and then it's evolved into like our number one music genre exactly so it's, it's kind of exactly. weird how that worked out right Mm -hmm. exactly it's it's more or less the same thing it's more or less the same thing and now like everyone you know who who doesn't listen to rap who doesn't li listen to hip-hop and stuff blah, blah blah so you know maybe in a couple years time drill and grime will be you know accepted as kind of like hey uk culture let's go <laughs> Those off let's go <laughs> but yeah, dude, uh, at, was, i'm sorry what were you gonna say oh i was just gonna say like um you know with, with like people like drake and stuff he he came over here and was part of like a like a group or like an honorary member of a group called like boys better know um oh, and wow. you know it's just, and like basically like you know it, it kind of allowed lots of uk lingo and slang to be brought over there like fam and like in it and um wait fam came from you guys it? yeah pretty much i mean we I'm not sure if like the origins are London, but like fam is pretty much part of the everyday London lingo, which is like, what are you saying, fam? Hey, you good? You good? Dude, hey, let's I, lo go, I love let's that. Go. Like, that is one of my favorite shits. Like, that's like all my YouTube videos. What's up, fam? Welcome back. It's like, that's like, boom, there we go. Hey, <sighs> man, we're, put, we're, getting, we're getting put on by you guys, man. That's crazy. So, <laughs> when you moved from Hong Kong, I guess like six years ago from Hong Kong to London, was that like a crazy culture shock for you? Not really to be fair because obviously hong kong used to be like a british colony for the longest time 
So it allowed for Hong Kong to really open up in comparison to China. Mm. Um, and it allowed like an influx of like expats and different cultures, different religions. So in many ways, Hong Kong accelerated to the extent where it became like the Asian London or like the Asian New York. Um, it was the epicenter of trade. It was the epicenter of culture. So from day one, um, and since both my parents were also, were also educated in the UK as well. So from day one, I was kind of already exposed to Western culture a lot. Um, I would grow up watching like Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. Oh, there was lots of American influence as well. You know, grew up watching all of these cartoons, the classic ones like Ed, Ed and Eddie, Samurai ooh, Jack, blah, blah, blah. good bangers. stuff. Some bangers right there. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, but the beautiful thing about growing up in Hong Kong is that if you flip the channel, you could be watching anime. You could be like, you know, you could be watching like a Kung Fu movie or something. So it was a, it was an environment that allowed me to really, you know, be able to appreciate almost every aspect of every culture from like the get go. So when I moved over to London, it was pretty much the same thing. Cause like, you know, there's such like a huge abundance of different peoples here. So when I moved over, I was like, Oh look, it's like Western Hong Kong. Cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, there wasn't really much of a culture shock. Dude, that's so comforting. The fact that the same time I was watching Samurai Jack and Ed and Eddie, someone else on the other side of the world was watching the exact same thing. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, those big are my up, cartoons, man. Yo, the the good the, man, Cartoon Network back in the day was unbeatable. It I remember was. like going to school and then coming home, and then there'll be let's see, what okay, well, what what uh, what were there? All right, there was Ed Ed and Eddie, yeah, Powerpuff Girls, um, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, Samurai Jack. Um, oh, there were so many. Did Wait, you catch Teen Titans, you, Justice League? Ooh, ooh, yes. Did you catch Batman, the Tsunami? Did you catch the, like the Tsunami after school with series. like Dragon Ball Z and shit? Tsunami, you got Tsunami. Oh my Yeah, there God. was Dragon Ball Z and stuff as well. But then they, we also had like a separate... Actually, you guys have it over there as well. Animax. You guys have Animax, right? No. Do you have Animax? No. Is that a thing? I don't know. Oh, it's that. like a separate channel that was just for anime. Oh, uh, maybe so it is in a Hong Kong thing then, but... But yeah, there was Animax, and then there was another thing called Boomerang, which was like, uh, I'm pretty sure it was like old reruns of we like classic that. vintage cartoons. Like, yeah, like Scooby-Doo, like the OG, like 60, 60s of like Space Ghost, Johnny Quest. Man, oh those my were the days. Those Dude, that's, the days. that's so funny. Cats. Actually, now that I think about it, Boomerang was probably that channel next to Animax. Like back in the day when you had like a dish receiver, it was like channel right. 496 that you're just like, ah, oh, right. I don't, don't get these freaking channels. Like, <laughs> what the hell? Like, right. But dude, so um, you went to uh, London for, for uni, you said, or university for us dumb Americans. So I actually um, went to um, Canterbury for university, which is south of London, about two hours out from London. And uh -huh. it's... Um, near the coast of the UK, and it's like a small little village. It's like, well, they say it's a city, but it's basically a little village. But it was a now that was very different to Hong Kong. Uh, London is very similar to Hong Kong in terms of it being a city, but going to Canterbury, where it was mainly just you know small houses, there weren't any skyscrapers. It was like a like big fields and big open space. That was very different, but I really appreciated it because it was so different, and it allowed mm -hmm. me to kind of relax and. Because in Hong Kong and London, and I'm sure in New York as well, um, and loads of places, the pace of living is just so fast. Like everyone's always like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Everyone's always on their way to do something. Oh, Whereas yeah. in Canterbury, it was very much like a, 
hey man what do you want to do today oh, i don't know man let's <laughs> you know let's just chill about like let's play some footy and like on the you know on the, on the field like yeah let's go let's turn so it's really butter. Nice. <laughs> exactly <laughs> well, let's watch some paint dry <laughs> um but yeah so so i was there in canterbury yeah. for a few years and then i moved to london Ah, okay, okay, yeah. I mean, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like the time I went to Seattle, yeah. which is on the other coast of me mm -hmm. here in America. People were so goddamn slow. Like, it, 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 <laughs> I, it honestly pissed me off. Like, they were so slow to, like, place their coffee order, to walk, to do everything. Mm. Like, I left there being like, I'm never mm. coming back to Portland or Seattle <laughs> ever again. These people are just... You guys are yeah. living in the slow lane. <laughs> yeah. So did you study photography in college? So I actually studied um, art and film. So um, photography kind of came like naturally and organically afterwards. Mm. Well, not afterwards. It was kind of like simultaneous, but um, maybe I should just go into how I started photography. Sure. Um, so I was studying art and film because as a kid, um, I've always loved drawing. I've always loved sketching um, and watching those cartoons that we were talking about and watching all those animes that we were talking about really influenced that. Um, so since day one, I'd be drawing on napkins, I'd be writing my own stories, drawing my own comic books. Um, and then slowly but surely YouTube came about and I started doing little action shorts, um, of like, basically it's me and my friends kind of like holding BB guns and then I'll add in muzzle flares and explosions and like, what? like create short little vignettes, um, of like you know 12 year old fbi agent something like that Dude, that's so it's always... <laughs> but yeah i was very like a hyperactive kid um and so with that with that kind of background of like drawing and like you know doing these little short videos i kind of decided that i wanted to be a film director mm. um and i wanted to make films and i've always had a huge appreciation towards films because i feel like films have probably become our biggest influence in pop culture like tarantino and think about how he's influenced you know yeah. pop culture so much um so i went to uni in the uk because i wanted to leave hong kong because hong kong wasn't really the best place to kind of develop in terms of artistic creativeness um uh, more on that later more on that later yeah we'll get but um so i went so i went to the uk um because i was already a, i had a british passport so it was really easy for me to go i didn't have to get a visa or anything oh, wow. so i went there um and you know started getting into it it was nice uni was nice uh, it was good for making friends but in my honest opinion i wasn't really learning too much because it was stuff that i was already that i already kind of knew slash was doing on my own uh, in terms of like the film stuff at least um so when i was so when i was studying there in my free time i started um i have a huge obsession with tattoos basically uh, i've got loads like yeah i've got loads i'm like Whoa. littered um so when i was at uni i started like doing lots of tattoo designs um and started that as like a little side business of like yo, i'll design your tattoo if you pay me like you know 10 bucks or something um and then slowly but surely my friend one of my friends was like yo how sick would that look if you put that design on a t-shirt or like a jacket like people would buy that stuff and i was like all right okay so in the summer of um first year of uni i sat down with this friend and we put together a business plan put together some money and we started a clothing brand together um and basically it was all kind of like tattoo inspired art it was very streetwear 
um, and we started selling it. And it actually went pretty well. Where whilst I was at uni, it was a very nice bit of income, um, and I was able to pay off all my debts. Blah blah blah. I was legit like in That's the really good. That's uni. really good. Um, so like the first few collections actually kind of not blew up, but it did really well, especially here in London. Um, but slowly, but then like through that clothing brand, obviously we need to take photos for the website. We need to take photos for the catalogs, et cetera, et cetera. So at first I was like, okay, I'll just hire someone to do it and then blah, blah, blah. But then obviously that was more money. That was more money. And as a uni student trying to do our own startup business, it was very tough, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we had to try and save as much money as we can. So one Christmas, um, I decided, you know what, I'm going to get myself a camera and I'm just going to take all the photos from here on. And then I started taking photos and then I was like, yo, this is pretty dope. Like, I'm having lots of fun taking photos. Um, and after a couple of years, so I graduated at this point and the clothing brand was still all right. But at that point I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to move on from the clothing brand and I'm going to focus on photography because I feel like I can tell my stories better through photography. Oh. Um, so we ended the clothing brand and I shifted to being a full-time photographer and that's pretty much it. That's how, you know, that that's the whole journey. So even so, though yeah. the clothing brand was successful making good ass money to pay off your school debt, you still started from scratch from photography to like, start that pretty instead. much pretty much i mean mind you we had a very good uh start for the brand and then slowly it kind of just kind of you know died down a little bit towards mm -hmm. the end um but i would say that's also due to the fact that me and my friend were slowly kind of growing out of it as well uh -huh. and we're slowly kind of losing interest so at that point we were both we both said like okay we've had a good run and we've actually been able to make a nice bit of profit from this but I feel like our minds are on to different things because my friend then went on to pursue music and I went on to pursue photography and we just haven't looked back since. So interesting that you went photography over film because you that childhood passion mm, was like being a filmmaker. True, like, it's true. like you went for a single frame instead of multiple frames. It's kind of, it's mm. kind of like an interesting little thing. I would say the main reason behind that is because film is a lot more expensive. Um, because, you know, so with stills, all you basically need is that camera and you're kind of set, right? But with, um, obviously, there's, you know, lots of other things that come into it. But with video, uh, there's a lot more planning involved in terms of, like, first you need to make sure the lighting is good. So you need to get lights. You need to, you know, book out a location if the location isn't good enough. You need There's, like... Oh, you need to make sure the cast is all free on that same day for filming. Slowly but surely, it just kind of, you know, like film just proved to be quite expensive to do in comparison to photography. So I decided to pursue photography more. Mm, I'm not. I mean, to be completely honest, that kind of sounds very similar to photography. What you just said. True. <laughs> now that now that, that's true. That's true. That sounds very. That similar is a very good point because, because I've seen some photos that is of a yours very that good have point. multiple people in it, and it's the exact same dynamic. That is, that is a very good point. That's a very good point. But but the main point I was trying to make was like I think um, film like a good having a good film camera slash equipment. I think the equipment side is more expensive than the photography side. Oh yeah. Because with photography, all you really need is like a strobe light or like an in-camera flash, et cetera, et cetera. And that one camera, you're basically set. Whereas with film, you're going to need audio equipment. You're going to need, you know, 
different kinds of light you need a constant light you might need like a spotlight you might need you know all sorts of stuff you need nd filters different lenses oh, you know you might yeah. need like a external monitor hard drives blah blah, blah. It all kind of racks up and then transportation of that equipment whoo um so yeah so yeah that, that's what i was trying to say but i, I yeah, get film, your point as well. yeah film is, is like a way more complex Ver, for, like version of photography mm. just like all this extra mm. shit the lenses are like mm-hmm. 10 times the price for some odd reason like i have no idea why like who made that up and so i don't know man i mean here's the thing like oh they're cutting out a little bit this um and he's director oh, wait hold up hold up you cut out you, you cut I can out hear for a you but i can't see you yeah I, I think uh all right we're good we're good all right we're good, we're good. All right, so um, where were, okay, yeah, so we were having this conversation yesterday with uh, me and my friend, and he's a director of photography, a cinematographer, and we were both saying like, hey man, I kind of want some new gear, like I want some new equipment, what should I get? It's like, hmm, I could get a new lens, or I could get two new cameras. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> and it's so true. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense, but it's just how it is, it's just how it is, because a lens can truly, change everything for for film like a lens is that impactful like is it that is it that crazy in the film world i think for both for both photography and film because at the end of the day obviously you know it's still there's lots of crossover um and loads of the loads of still cameras now can also do amazing video but obviously if you're trying to go into that high-end kind of um tier Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when the cameras start getting a bit more expensive. So you've got like Alexas, you've got Blackmagic, and you've got um, pro- uh, red, like red cameras. All of those yeah, are like you know seventy grand or something like that. Um, and then the lenses, of course, like you know, because with each lens, you can basically tell a different story from each lens. Because say you're shooting on a thirty-five millimeter. This is where it's going to get a little bit technical, lads. No, but say we're shooting on a 35 millimeter. Um, basically, like when you're shooting, say something like a table, like a table with like a glass and like a few things here and there evenly placed. With a 35 millimeter lens, it kind of creates this like effect where everything is tilting up away from you, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then if you change the lens to like a 50 millimeter, that kind of tilting up effect become straighter and it'll become like you know it'll become the perspective so with lenses you can almost create different effects and then obviously with 60 uh, the the higher you go like the different cameras etc etc with imax cameras medium format 65 millimeter um i would say the best example would be have you seen the film revenant with leo where he Uh, fights a bear yeah 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 yeah. wilderness yes i have seen that so What's so great about that film is that um, even when you're looking at a wide shot of like a, of like exteriors and stuff, it has this really 3D effect where like there's very, very lot there's a lot of depth even though it's a wide. So if you were shooting this on a normal say 28 millimeter lens or um, a 24 millimeter lens or something, and it's like a lower end camera it could legit just look like a flat image. And obviously you get, you know, different planes of um, aspect and like uh, focus and stuff. But with a 65 millimeter or like an IMAX, it creates this weird kind of 
like the per- like everything seems close but far and no like, yeah no thinking of that movie strong. thinking of that movie it, it makes me think of the scenes where you, you would like pan over the forest and you felt like you could mm-hmm. see deep into that forest like you could see right some, exactly like you could see past the first exactly. row of trees as opposed to like exactly just, uh, there mm-hmm. we go there we go and it almost feels like you're there um so yeah yeah, that, so that's why, like, you know, having the different lenses, having the equipment can make such a difference. And so I get, I do get why, like, they're so expensive. Damn, I feel like as a photographer, we should know more about these things. Like, I feel like I right, haven't properly right. heard anyone <laughs> say that. Like, until you said, like, I haven't really heard, like, that whole 45 perspective and the 50 perspective. But, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess naturally, it's, it's just, what are you saying? What are you saying? Uh, no, I was just going to say, uh, I kind of forgot what I was going to say now. Oh, Sorry, you, yeah, you keep going. Yeah, no, you keep going. yeah, for people listening, sometimes it's it's tougher because there's like a, a like a packet loss because we're so far away, but it's all good. Um, uh, like, mm. I mean, you kind of pick up of it after you've been doing photography long enough that different lenses have a different mood to them and like a different feeling to them. And 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 or like there's like the general rule of thumbs. I mean, I haven't heard about tilting or anything mm-hmm. like that, or like which lenses make you feel more intimate and make you feel more there. But like generally, it's like 35 mm-hmm. fashion, 50 portraiture, 85 portraiture. But then mm-hmm. it's like 100 mm-hmm. 100 millimeter is for like beauty and close ups. But if you ever shot a portrait with 100 millimeter, mm-hmm. it's kind of lit. Like I love that perspective. Like it's a it's mm-hmm. it's really nice. So you're kind of mm-hmm. breaking the rules with your. With your photography, is there a certain lens that you gravitate to? So um, I currently right now I'm using a 24 to 70 Sigma lens. And essentially the reason why I use a 24 to 70 is because it gives me that range where I can, like, if I want to get like a far shot, I can like, you know, boom. Or if I want to go a little closer, I can zoom in. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Like, I don't really have like specific lenses that I like I gravitate towards. I pretty much have one workhorse and I just use it and that's I maximize it. 24 to 70 yeah. are my favorite lenses. Boom, 100%. Um, I've also used like the equivalent that was done by Sony with the G Master range and exactly the same. Like, I just wanted that like range of like, I can zoom in if I want. If not, I can just, you know, pull back. Well, I guess I guess while we're talking the techie stuff, what kind of camera do you use? So I use a Sony A7 II. Oh, Sony! Um, I've been I've been a mirrorless shooter for pretty much years now, actually. So I started with a Nikon D7000 or something like that. I don't actually remember because it was uh, who was it? I think it was either like a course mate at uni or someone that i knew anywho it was a camera they had so i used it um and it was great it was amazing uh but at that time i didn't really know the nitty-grittiness of like you know what what makes a good camera and what doesn't make uh, what makes a bad camera or anything like that and i was kind of shooting on like automatic mode blah blah, blah. i didn't really know what <laughs> hey we've meant. all been there we've all been um there. exactly we all do that we all do that and then slowly but surely, um, you know, obviously I had to give the camera back to my friend. So I was like, all right, okay, what's the camera that I can get that's like, you know, not too expensive, but also good enough. And at the time, um, the a7 II just came out and it did a little bit of everything. Um, it was really ergonomic. And in comparison to a DSLR, the mirrorless is just so lightweight. Oh and I God, really like, yeah. 
exactly i really like the idea of like me you know going to uni i could put it in my backpack boom go to a lecture and then right after be like all right i'm going to london i'm going to take a photo away and um so that's why i started with a mirrorless with the sony a72 and i and it's just basically been this ever since dude um, mirrorless i've I'm used so jealous oh they're so good dude like th that by itself the fact that you just throw it in your bag and take it out like it feels like more fun like when you have right have like a canon mirror or like a canon dslr with your 24 7 on it it feels like a whole mm -hmm. goddamn unit so it's like it, right. it feels like intimidating sometimes i feel like to other people like you have this giant but it does it does feel good too though like having that like bigger like, having that bigger you're kind of like, like oh yeah i've got a weapon i've got a cannon yeah um, i know but like i feel like if i was in the streets like it, like having like a fun day with my friends true, like taking true. photos there's no way i would bring that and be like oh, what's up guys like, yeah true sony true, is like true. still kind of sexy and small and like it's kind of sick exactly exactly um and yeah, I mean, I have used like a few other cameras here and there because um, I was actually uh, during my like startup stages, I was interning for other photographers or like working with other photographers. So I have had chances to use like Canons and um, have I used, have I used anything else? Yeah, mainly Canon, <laughs> Canon 5D, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it was and it was great. I, I loved using that big machine as well, but I always gravitated towards the lighter weight one. That's really interesting. You, so you kind of apprenticed when you first started. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's uh, I think it's a very you know crucial part in most um, you know young starting up photographers is like having a mentor um, to kind of like teach you the ropes and kind of like show you how it's done can really help. It can really, really help, which is why right now I'm actually not mentoring, but I'm kind of like, you know, showing some, showing a few people around, like, you know, I'll bring them onto shoots and stuff and they would help me out. Um, and I would try and explain as many things as I can because I had that and that really helped me. So I wanted to do the exact same thing. Did, did you mentor anyone? Did you like could you mentor with like who was your mentor if you mind me asking i'm just kind of curious um so he was a he's a photographer called harris newcomb and uh he's a wow. he's a pretty big photographer here in london he's great and he's a yeah, good I friend um boom and um yeah so i am i was uh working for him for about two three years or so um when the, almost immediately after i graduated from uni and he took me under his wing, even though he had no obligation to or no, you know, responsibility. He just decided to help me out, and he really taught me so, so much. So I'm very appreciative of that. Oh, see, that connection makes sense because when I started getting into London photographers, it was you mm -hmm. and Harris, and there's like some other people I forgot, but you two were like the main ones who had this like similar style. But it makes sense mm -hmm. now if, since you worked under him. I'm sure he taught you some mm -hmm. like different techniques mm -hmm. or the way his, his mm -hmm. approach or his editing techniques and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, um, the, obviously the London scene is pretty, it's pretty expansive. Like there's so many ph talented photographers out there right now. Um, I would say one at the forefront is a girl called Hannah Zabzabi. I'm not sure if you may have um, come upon her work yeah, before, I know, but I know her too. Yeah. So she's probably, she's a very good friend of mine, but I would say she's probably one of the most talented people uh, in the London scene. Whoa, big ups. Um, there's also a guy called a hey, big up. Hey, Hannah, shout out. <laughs> um, there's an also, there's also another photographer called the Tog father. Um, and he's sick. 
like the he's so good <laughs> it's like great name right great name <laughs> it kind of makes the me cringe a little bit to really be completely honest yeah it's it's a, yeah i get what you mean i get what it's you mean cringe. but when you see his work you'll be like yo okay damn dude um and that's the thing i feel like the london scene is just so like you know full of life and full of vibrance and um and the thing is in london this scene is like really close-knit and it's re it's very much like a little community where almost everyone knows everyone every photographer basically knows the other photographer um and i think that's a beautiful thing and the thing is it's not really a competition either mm. um everyone's really willing to help each other out and big each other up which i think is great um and i think it's something really unique and special to the uk scene um obviously i don't know how it is over in america or the rest of the world but at least here, even amongst like YouTubers and um, you know photographers and filmmakers, everyone here is willing to help the other, um, and I think that's really cool. It's interesting you bring that up because the few London photographers I follow, it's like you, Hannah, and Harris Newcomb, the people that I see the most, and I, I have mm -hmm. noticed that you guys seem like kind of a click, but also your styles are like you have a lot of similarities, but they're all different at the same time. Like, mm. You all mm. tend to do this sort of like orangey red skin. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. What is um, that? What is that, I, Sebastian? I need to know. Like, what what is up with the orange red skin? Like, what is going on there? Am I missing something? Because it's beautiful to look at, but it just <laughs> totally seems like it's like this unique style to you guys. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to speak for Harris or Hannah, but for of me course, personally, um, I think. I don't know, man. I just feel like ah, it looks cool. I feel, it does. <laughs> like, like here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like, um, when when we all started out, or when I started out, um, it took me a good while to really kind of find my style or what worked for me. And I think even now to this day, I'm still kind of developing it. I'm still trying to find it. Um, and I'll and although lots of people say that, oh, I do have a style. I don't actually think I do yet. I think visually, um. I'm still kind of getting there. I'm still kind of getting there. And I think the one thing that kind of, you know, makes me stand out a little bit would be more so the narrative or like the concept rather than the look. Because the look is very much kind of like a mix match of things I've picked up over the years. Um, now, obviously, as I said, and as you said, Harris was a huge part of my life as well. So, you know, there was lots of kind of uh, stimulus from him. But um, Harris and I also, Harris and I and Hannah, we all have very similar tastes in films and music and visual media as well. So I grew up uh, reading comics and reading lots of manga and watching cartoons, as I said. Um, and some of my favorite comics were, well, not comics, but art was Tank Girl uh, by oh, yeah, right Jamie, Jamie Hewlett. Like his Ooh. work, like he worked with like gorillas and stuff, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's just like the gorilla stuff. Yeah, that's sick. It, it, he's the guy that does the gorilla's artwork. Oh, whoa. What's his name again? Jamie Hewlett. Oh, so that's Hewlett. the genius behind all that sick gorillas. Yep. Okay. Yep. So um, him with Jamie Hewlett's style, it's very vibrant. Like he's got people with green skin, with pink skin, with red skin. And since day one, like looking at his work and Seeing like a badass girl. Actually, I can show you some of this. Yeah, I'm gonna dude. find. I'm gonna Just find. There's this one. There's this one frame that always sticks to me and has basically become like the biggest inspiration for my aesthetic in general. 
So this girl right here. Can you describe it for people who are listening real quick? Okay, so there's this girl right here. And basically, she's kind of like, she's just like a punk girl. She's got a cigarette. She's got a bandage on her face. And she's kind of like lifting up her shirt. And she's got tape over her boobs. And she's got like tattoos. She's got like, you know, scratches on her face. She just looks like she's been through a battle. But she looks fucking badass. And I don't know if I can swear. Can I swear? Dude, we can say whatever the fuck we want, dude. I'm not worried about it. Hey, okay, this is a podcast, let's go. Let's go. Baby, this is the Wild West. Let's go. Oh, and then here's another one of like just a girl with like a Mickey Mouse hat. Uh, oh. Mickey Mouse hat. Dude, I, to- I totally see that. Like a cigarette. And like, yeah. And that's the thing. Like that, that aesthetic of like a badass girl who doesn't give a crap about what everyone thinks. That really influenced me a lot as like my, oh, says internet connection was unstable for a sec. But yeah, sorry. But yeah, that aesthetic really influenced me growing up. Um, And also watching lots of movies where there's like a badass female, kind of like Kill Bill, or I'm not sure if you're familiar with the works of Hayao Miyazaki. He did Studio Ghibli. Oh, of Um, course. So Howl's Moving Castle. Amazing movie. Boom. So exactly so miyazaki uh, has always proclaimed himself to be a feminist and i fully agree because in his films um he always has a really badass woman character like no matter it who's does. the main character yeah. there's always a there's always a sick woman there, kind of like yeah I, I could do whatever you do but better um always and, like overcoming you know, growing and yeah yeah and like growing up in that environment of seeing all these badass women and having a mom and a sister who are fucking badass big up to them um oh you know they they kind of influenced me in in my kind of narratives and like my visual style where i wanted to show badass goddesses almost and have them look very you know cool and vibrant and just a little different from everyone else so um that really influenced my style a lot uh, mm-hmm. in terms of like who i shoot with and how i shoot i mean 100 percent. when you show that up it makes so much sense because i i have some of your photos on my desktop here that of course i can mm-hmm. pull up in a second but you it those punk rock like badass girls like empowerment mm. it it's mm-hmm. so obvious when you show that that it's in your work like you use these kinds of like tough edgy girls and you don't mm-hmm. sort of you don't how do i say you don't make them look weak like you you glorify their powerfulness their femininity mm. and it's such a strong concept mm. even, even the yep. red backdrop you, you i've noticed you use a lot of red backdrops too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i like i like using red a lot uh just because like you know it's universally kind of accepted throughout history and throughout art is like red is just the you know color of power the color of passion the color of blood um so i like using you know block primary colors as well uh you know having tattoos and like you know just having badass people has always been a theme. But recently, I would say I've kind of moved on from that a little bit, where um, now I'm trying to kind of portray, I'm still using the same subject matter and the same people, don't get me wrong. But I think my visual style has changed in a way where I'm trying to make them more into classical art goddesses, Mm. if that makes sense. So... I said I grew up with all these cartoons and all these comics, but another huge part of my life was an appreciation towards art, um, classical art. So I'll, so one of my biggest inspirations is actually going to museums 
uh, especially here in London, being the epicenter of culture in Europe. Um, I go to the museums all the time. I go to the V&A. I go to uh, National Portrait Gallery almost once a month, at least up until now during the pandemic. Um, and I would look at my, uh, I would look at the works of Caravaggio. I would look at the works of Vermeer, uh, Gustav Klimt. Um, you know, all, all these grand masters. And you know, seeing how they com- com- uh, like compose their images and how they use lights really inspired me to start the series that um, I'm sure you may have seen about a year ago called Between Harsh Reality and Utopian Beauty. And it's essentially using the my like edgy kind of aesthetic and subject mm-hmm. matter and then putting them into a context of where I wanted each photo to kind of look like a painting, to kind of look like a you know, classical piece of art. Can, can I that's pull one up? I would say can, my, can I pull one up? Yeah, quick? go for it. Like go one that directly yeah, references. Yeah, yeah. Hold up, Boom, let me share 100%. this screen real quick. Uh, can I just go quickly grab some water? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, hold up. Uh, yeah, oh. before I share this, I'll pause real quick because I got to go pee, and then we'll we'll talk about the okay. photo. Okay. Nice, nice. All right, there we go. Here, let me let me pull up something that directly references your like. Uh, your museum experiences and stuff. Cause dude, that's so sick that like living here in DC, I share a lot of the same feelings towards museums too. Is like back when I could go, I'd go at least like once a month, sometimes twice a month to the oh, national, oh. we have the national portrait gallery here too uh, in I Chinatown. Say. And that's my favorite spot mm-hmm. because they have like the best rotating pieces and I'll go there with like, a yes. I'll go there with a notebook uh-huh. and like, sometimes I'll uh-huh. get baked. Sometimes I won't depends on like how I'm feeling. Because sometimes I'll get like baked uh-huh. and I'll go, and I'll, I'll like I'll like start Very to feel paranoid, annoyed. and like I don't like that. It's weird in like federal property, mm-hmm. but um, I'll just go and I'll sit, yeah. and just be like studying stuff. But, Whoa, yeah, I'm saying like, exactly. Dude. But dude, it's so nuts, like Whoa, to see these like, like it blows my mind to think that as a photographer, we take like one photo, we may edit it, and we do some stuff. Mm-hmm. It takes hours. Your photo is probably a lot different than my mm-hmm. editing process, but. Mm-hmm. These painters for one frame, they probably spend like a month, especially if it's like a fifteen foot at golden, least golden frame. Exactly, painting. at least. Like, like yeah. yeah. Like if you look at some of the some of the pieces that say like, oh, it started in seventeen forty six, finished in seventeen fifty three, and you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, this is ten years or something. Dude. Whoa! Imagine <laughs> spending that much time on one photo. Right, because you know he wasn't procrastinating. Like, they had nothing else to do. You know he yeah. wasn't watching YouTube. Like, <laughs> exactly. You know he wasn't watching cartoons and shit. Well, here, let, let me share this one with you. This is one that I think I'd love for you to speak on. But, but like this, I feel like is a direct reference to your museum experience. Like, yep, yep, yep. So, um, as some of you may know, this is a painting by Velasquez uh, called Venus. Um, very self-explanatory to be fair. It was okay. Actually, do you know what? Uh, I, I'll go a little bit into the actual painting itself. So that yeah, photo, so that original painting by Velasquez shows Venus in almost exactly the same pose as this photo. Um, and she's looking into the mirror and there's like a few angels holding up the mirror and she just looks very sad. Um, she's just looking into her own mirror, uh, into her own reflection. And there's lots of, you know, the, the common kind of uh, consensus on that story was um, vanity and pride and kind of like, um, you know, or, or you could say it was about Venus's beauty, 
and how you know she was very content and she was very you know glamorous or not glamorous but like um just be she, she was you know often heralded as one of the most beautiful creatures of the world so in this um reinterpretation uh, you could say uh which is titled the vanity of venus mm -hmm. or the pride of venus um i wanted to show that again similarly this is you know a very beautiful girl or venus and she, all she does is spend time with herself and you can see here she's having a cigarette she's chilling about and her own reflection has come to life and is oh, lighting her cigarette and you know she spends all this time in front of this reflection because all she does is spend time with this reflection she's got grapes she's got wine she's got alcohol she's got a candle it's almost as if she's so enamored with her own image that she's forgotten the world exists around her and all she needs is herself to sustain now you could argue that this is kind of powerful this could be like oh no a, a human being very a human being being content with themselves mm -hmm. but you could also argue that this is a very sad image you know this, this is just someone who's so vain that they're very alone and that's the thing with this series of work that I was just talking about, um, Utopian Beauty, is basically meant to be using beautiful imagery to tell sad stories. That's my theme now. That's my narrative that I'm trying to do. Is I, is I want people to look at the photo or the image or the piece and be like, oh, wow, that's really pretty. But the longer they look, the more they realize that it's actually a sad story. That's a sad narrative. Mm. Um, and I think the best way of describing it would be, you know, when you're really sad and you listen to a sad and, and, and you listen to a sad song and you, sh and you're like, Oh, I shouldn't be doing this, but I really like it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, being enamored and uh, being in like enveloped with all that, like angst and sadness. That's pretty much what I was trying to recreate that kind of bittersweetness of like, it's beautifully sad. I mean image. that that's a hard thing to pull off is is beautifully sad because with photography mm -hmm. if you just if you just do sad work it's it's like a fine art piece but it's not something that you, that you feel like people want to buy it which isn't a measure of if something's yep. good but I've learned from of my course. experiences that if you present artwork that's directly sad then people are mm -hmm. like eh but something like this and if you're listening it's it's a picture where this girl is laying her back is facing away from you it's like she's laying on her side she's looking into like mm -hmm. this small golden mirror but in the mirror and this is like the cool trippy part is that it's her own self reaching through the mirror lighting the real person's cigarette and in the mm -hmm. original piece she's just is she just looking at herself in the original piece or is she just facing away in the original yeah. piece she's just looking at herself with like her head kind of resting on her hand and it's and you just see the exact same reflection ah, um so okay. the my tw so my twist on this was adding the reflection interacting with herself and obviously there wasn't a cigarette <laughs> or wine or anything like that in the original painting and the original painting was just a beautiful woman looking at her own reflection see I, and i essentially just wanted twist, to accentuate mm, that one exactly twist, i just like, wanted to so add that little twist and, mm -hmm. and like that's that's the beauty of things because like some people would might be like oh you're copying but i'm like hell no I'm like this is inspiration because a photo is different than a painting mm. your interpretation will mm -hmm. always be extremely different and also something that mm -hmm. i've noticed is that you do use a lot of tatted models. This model is completely like pure looking. Mm -hmm. She has nothing on her skin. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I think with this series, especially, I kind of wanted to um, not necessarily move away from only shooting with 
tattooed models because i think that kind of became into like a its own thing as well where people were kind of saying like oh you only shoot with people that have tattoos but that wasn't true um and essentially with this new series that i was doing i wanted to kind of really um have that kind of like classical art kind of vibe going on i wanted that to be the theme where like people could be like oh, i see what he's trying to do here blah 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 um so caitlin the model in this photo she's a really good friend of mine and she had that you know classical art kind of beauty about her mm -hmm. she had like the rosy cheeks the beautiful lips the beautiful curls um and she and so i thought she was perfect for it and yeah i mean i think that's tight i wish i had more examples of, of that series up here but that was like one i think directly contributes but it's like those paintings got it right like sometimes it's just simple like a beautiful woman laying down like the suggested mm -hmm. nudity and like that's all you need like that's beautiful mm -hmm. in itself mm -hmm. i think the, the main thing that i usually get from looking at classical paintings and classical art is their use of light and their use of negative space and composition that's the main thing that i always tell everyone should go and examine is so for example right now even on my screen you've got i've got one single light that's kind of like at a 45 degree angle to my face and that creates that one strong shadow on my face except this little illumination of the cheek um that's the the, the rembrandt lighting yep. um and you know just looking just like stuff like that creates such a different mood and like you know it looks so different already if it was just like the light behind or if it was just like facing me directly mm. again i mean it looks so oh, okay the the camera's obviously not the right but yeah I mean, even if it was like facing me directly it looks so different already so like lighting can really change the mood of a photo so much uh which is why i always tell everyone to go to these museums and go on or even if you don't have access to these museums just look at classical art and see how they light um but yeah, like in, in terms of composition as well, in terms of the narrative, I think what's so beautiful about all these old pieces is the fact that there's such a story behind them. Um, wait, wait, can, can there's we one stick, can, can example we stick, that I was. So I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. mean to cut you off, but can yeah. we stick on the lighting part real quick? Because I think that's really important. Okay. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Back in the classical times, I, they had candle lighting. I'm pretty sure it was, they normally only lit with one light. Or it was mm -hmm. either like a candlelight or a window light. And and then that's why it was mm -hmm. like such still photos because if you're painting things, they didn't have to talk mm -hmm. to you. If you're painting things, what's an easy thing for them to do? Well, lay on your side and look in a mirror for an hour or two so I can get like the outline right. But something that I think is important with photography yep. is, is that it's mm -hmm. not taking photos. You're shaping light. Like you're essentially like your your exactly. light is the most important part of your photo which i think needs to be hammered in and just why i want to stick on it because it's not about like the composition composition is important but at the end of the day it's mm -hmm. all about how you shape your light and that is how you can tell who's like work is different you know because anyone could shoot a Facts. fashion shoot and blow it out and have a pure white and then you could never tell whose it is but depending on mm -hmm. how you shape your light and manipulate it and place it mm -hmm. like that's mm -hmm. the true test of someone who's like really good at what 100%. they do or bad at what they do because if you look at like 100 if you look at beginning photographers some of the e earliest mistakes you do and i've done these before is you just blow it out like you just, just put like a flash yep. on your camera and you just completely mm -hmm. blow it out and you're like oh it looks good but you start to notice that 
when you put this the mm-hmm. light to a 45 like Rembrandt degree and there's like all different kinds of crazy techniques I forget about but mm-hmm. you notice like oh the way it mm-hmm. comes across her back like the way it falls exactly. across her face and creates that triangle exactly it's like, it's exactly like, and that is so small important small details like mm-hmm. that can like elevate your image so so much um and you're right you're right i feel like photographers and you know lots of filmmaker filmmaking as well at the end of the day you are simply the manipulator of light um i think one of the best people to be doing this right now is a guy called roger deakins i'm sure you might have heard of him Mm -hmm, so roger deakins he's the he he's a director of photography for films and he did films like skyfall he did films like dunkirk he did films like 1917 so obviously um in film you know people always celebrate the director but it's the director of photography the cinematographer that can really you know really bring the film to life um so roger deakins he his films have a very natural look about them and it's insane and i think one of the best examples in terms of light is there's um there's a scene in skyfall uh james bond uh where he's running on this icy lake and in and behind him this mansion is on fire um and rather than obviously creating like you know this they did actually blow up the mansion but rather than like having you know the mansion permanently being on flames whilst they did all those shots they had like a massive grid of like i don't know a giant lights giant tungsten lights and they were and you know they they had that set up in like a formation where it was basically like a giant solar panel of lights Whoa. and it was just illuminating and it was all like from the back it was backlit and it was like lots of beautiful silhouettes and it was just it was all like basically set where the mansion was and so that it would always be you know you always have that spatial relationship of where everyone was and like the way the light would hit was just beautiful and roger deakins really in my opinion is the best cinematographer of all time and i think anyone who's interested in going into film or photography should definitely check out his work i'm gonna be completely honest i fell in the category of giving all the props to the director too i had no idea that the director of photography was actually in charge of all the lighting Mm. to be completely honest like i had Mm -hmm. i had i Mm -hmm. honestly in my mind whenever i saw director photography in the credits i just assumed he was like on set taking stills (laughs) <laughs> like so I, yeah there there is that common misconception yeah not not many people know what a director of photography actually does um and the thing is the dp so the director obviously you know he kind of has his vision the dp is the guy who makes that vision into a reality now oh. the director obviously you know he would have like oh he he so okay here's an example zach oh, yeah. snyder mm-hmm. In my opinion, he is visually one of the best, but in terms of substance, he may not necessarily be a good director. As uh, my friend always says, he's like, what if a 14-year-old boy had a million-dollar budget? His films would look like that. So they look great. They look like comic books and stuff. It looks sick, but then it doesn't really make sense in terms of like the, uh, the story and the narrative. Wait, wait, what, he focuses what's, what's a lot on the moment. What's a Zack Snyder film? Like, what's an obvious one? Uh, Batman versus Superman, 300. Um, okay. Man okay. of Steel. Okay. Uh, so he's a very, he focuses a lot on the moment, on the visual candy. Now, 
Zack Snyder is a director that has a very clear vision and you can see that and he would obviously only work with one DP or a DP that understands him. Um, now the DP, he's someone who would basically be the guy that would be like, right, I know what you're seeing in your head. This is how we're going to have to do it. So we're going to put a light on this side. We're going to put lights there. We're going to have the camera shoot at this angle. But so he's the guy that makes all those decisions. Uh, so they're very, very important to the process. And when you have someone like Roger Deakins, that's someone who's got years of experience. And you could be, you could basically be a G, like a, a kid, like Tim, Tom and Bill from down the road. And you could come up with a concept, give it to Roger Deakins and he'll probably make that film into an Oscar film. He'll be uh, like, yeah, okay, cool. We'll make it look great. <laughs> like DPs have that much power. Like a good oh, DP wow. can make or break a film. Mm. Oh, that's good to know. See, now, now you just completely shifted. Like it's like the director is the is the guy, but the DP, yeah, he's the lighting, the mood, like this. Mm -hmm. Everything looks okay. He brings it all together through the. So lighting. I think the most important thing to have on the film is basically to have people that understand each other. Obviously, you want a director that has a good vision and a DP that knows the director well enough to be like, okay, I know what you mean. And they can come to a compromise and create something together. The minute someone bashes heads, then obviously it doesn't work. And the same could obviously be said about photography as well. So I don't know how familiar you are with my work, but there's one photo um, called Icarus. You may have hold seen. Up, hold up, hold up. Yes. Can I pull that up before you start talking about this? Yep, 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 yep. Because of course, uh, of course. Let, let me just give you my spiel on your Icarus real quick before you blow our minds with it. Because in my opinion, sure, sure, uh, I could be wrong here, but Icarus is a masterpiece, and I say that, oh, and, I, and, and I never say that about people's work, dude. Like when you die, this is gonna be the photo that like is like in the front <laughs> on, or the cover of your book, dude. Like this photo is Thank you. insane, and like I'm not trying to blow your head up, but dude, like looking at this photo. I'm just like, God damn it. Like anyone watching, if you are not, if you're in the car right now, stop your car and go to the YouTube video or just go to his <laughs> Instagram and look at this photo. Dude, please, please. Okay. Keep going. This photo is just like, thank you. So cool, um, but, um, yes. Yeah, so, so this photo Icarus, um, was a huge production. It was a huge, huge production probably. And is the biggest thing I've ever done. Um, and this was meant to be the final piece of uh the series that i was talking about earlier utopian beauty so i wanted to end the series with a bang i wanted it to be the best concept obviously and with the best photo i've ever taken um now obviously that you know was a lot of pressure blah 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 so when i was in the initial conceptualization phase and coming up with the idea um i was thinking okay you know what's well, what direction should i go blah, blah blah i had that classical art theme going but how can i continue it um and then i you know i've always been obsessed with angel wings i've always been obsessed with wings and like how they look um yeah these wings are uh, enormous dude holy shit were those mm, custom made so i'll get to that i'll get to that okay okay that. okay 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 um so i've always been obsessed with angel imagery and funnily enough um i was watching batman versus superman uh, mm -hmm. by Zack snyder and there's this one painting in that film where Lex Luthor, played by Jesse Eisenberg, uh, was talking about how, you know, angels and demons, blah, blah, blah. And he said that angels come fall from the sky. And then 
it wasn't like it, that didn't really inspire me from the get-go but then that kind of stuck with me i was like okay you know angel imagery blah 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 and i really liked the look of that painting um and obviously as a kid we were taught about the story of icarus the man who flew too close to the sun um for those of you who don't know the story of icarus essentially yeah. his father who was the god of something i don't know there are so many greek gods um he decided to make uh icarus his son a pair of wings out of wax and feathers but obviously with wax you know you can't fly too close to heat because then they will melt icarus was like yo fuck you man i'm gonna fly wherever the fuck i want um now the and then he flew he was having fun then he flew too close to the sun his wings got burnt he fell down to earth and then drowned uh so it's a terrible story and it's a story about um i guess you could say ignorance or arrogance you know however you want to spin it now that story you know was something i was taught from a very early age and that was when i kind of decided like okay i'm getting lots of angel imagery in my head i want to do something about icarus so then i went on to google and i was like right give me icarus you know paintings blah 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 and there was this amazing painting very famous painting arguably the most famous imagery of icarus ever a painter called herbert draper uh, and the image itself was called the lament for icarus um i don't know you'll probably put that photo up on youtube right when when, uh, when we talk about it maybe you know if i had someone helping me and my computer wasn't a total piece of shit i would pull it up right now but like right. I, can, I can really only pull up photos i have like saved to my desktop without okay fair, fair, fair. Video. that's cool that's cool um but yeah anyway there's this there's this beautiful painting and essentially it was uh the aftermath of icarus falling into the sea and he was he was kind of like being dragged up by some um naiads and druids um and he was you know he was dead but he was very peaceful and his wings were gigantic now that was a very big inspiration for this photo in terms of the composition and in terms of you know how the wings uh are in terms of scale and um that was the starting off point so a part of my process is actually drawing out the concept before i take the photo oh wow so um this allows me to kind of create a mock up which then i would use to pitch to models to set designers to makeup artists so that everyone knows exactly what i'm seeing ah. and that's why i kind of that that was like the segue from the last topic about we need people that you know know your vision so if i do these sketches if i do all these drawings people know exactly what i want from the get-go so i did the mock-up for icarus that's crucial, and then i sent it crucial because it helps with composition yeah. and it, it legit helps with planning the lighting blah 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 it's it's such an important part and i highly recommend it to anyone um so i had this idea i had this I had the drawing and i sent it to one of my best friends who's a set designer and i told him okay how realistic is this if we wanted to make wings of that scale he was like we'll have to see we'll have to rain check we'll have <laughs> to rain check huge man they're huge they're huge they're huge their wingspan of like you know in it, it, yeah it, it's mad it's like what, um, like like what 30 feet you think from tip to tip longer so right? oh, i was actually I, I was trying to remember the exact figure but i actually don't remember how big they were but um 
actually, I might have some behind the scenes photos of this that I can show you in a bit. But essentially, right. So I told the set designer guy, I was like, right, okay, I want these giant ass wings. Oh, I remember. I think there was set. No, was it? Okay, never mind. Let, let, let's forget about the figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he, and so yeah, I told him, I want big ass wings. He was like, all right. <laughs> and then we need lots of people. He's like, so. I, I told the set designer, I'm like, right, if you can if you can worry about the wings, I'll worry about everything else. He was like, okay. So um, a few weeks passed. This photo took seven months of production. That's how long this photo took. Seven months of planning and production. I'm pulling up. Um, <laughs> and it was it was seven months it obviously wasn't like seven months per day like you know 12 hours per day yeah but it was seven months in the planning simply because wow. you know it was the logistics of the wings where we were going to shoot it how the light was going to be as well as how many people needed to be in the shot to fill up the space what kind of camera i needed to use etc cetera, etc cetera. so after a few weeks the set designer came back and he came up with a plan of how we were going to do these wings so this set designer his name is francesco and he's a very, very talented individual mm -hmm. um, and a huge, huge part of my process. So he came up with this idea of like, right, what we're going to do is we're going to do like a metal frame for the wings out of these rubber tubes and tubes that he had left over from previous projects. And then we would use that as basically like a chassis. Oh. And then on top of the, and there was like a, basically like a grid kind of structure to it. Um, and then once all of that was done, we just buy a shit ton of feathers <laughs> and then just kind of like, you know, put them in, boom, 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 and layer them and to create that wing kind of oh, um, effect. That's ingenious because so that, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'd so imagine, that, I'd imagine that making mm -hmm. them separately and then having to put them down would be so much more difficult and pain in the ass, but that way of just laying it down and then laying the feathers on top you know for mm -hmm. the photo exactly and just for that shot and because you drew like, exactly. the angle and everything you exactly can ah. yep yep and then um so once we had everything in place basically he, he was able to just put the feathers together um he it was me him and a few other amazing people that helped out it took us about the actual assembly took about maybe a week and a half but it was mainly the planning that took the longest um so we put all the feathers together and we ordered about 20,000 feathers, uh, 20,000 individual feathers um, off, off of uh, Amazon, off of some Chinese websites, um, blah, blah, blah. We had them all sent over and it was actually quite cheap to be fair. It wasn't that expensive. Are they but, real? Um, Are they real? No, they, they weren't real. They were all fake feathers. Oh, man, um, I don't care. I was just curious. I was just, I was just curious. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah, they were all fake feathers, blah, blah, blah. I think there were a few reruns in there, maybe. Like some, yeah, I don't know. But um, we basically, yeah, we, we, we got the wings together. And once the wings were kind of set in motion simultaneously, that was when I was figuring out, like, all right, you know, how many people do we need, blah, blah. So I basically sent out a, well, I, I sent a message to about maybe everyone else. I knew everyone <laughs> I knew in London. I was like, do you want to be part of this? Blah, blah, blah. But it was all very, very secretive because at this point, none of the series was out. Um, and I was doing all of this 
in advance prior to the series's launch. Yeah, dude, so I wanted like 30, to make sure there's 30 people, at least from what I can quickly count, there's like 30 people in this photo. Mm-hmm. Holy uh, there was there was 39 people on the day, I'm pretty oh sure. God organizing that. Holy shit. And um, yeah, exactly. So that took a lot of time as well, obviously, to organize is to send out the emails the call sheets the details and telling everyone not to tell anyone you're not allowed to take photos um and here's the really cool thing about this day is that no one in this photo knew what was going to happen or what they were going to go into what? the only person that knew was the guy that plays icarus so he's a he's a personal friend of mine called um earl ej i told him what was happening but everyone else no one knew what they were going into. I basically said, I'm doing a concept on this day. There's going to be a shit ton of people come what? through. That's it. Holy That's all I said. Because I wanted to make it into an experience, right? And What's the good thing about... Oh, yeah. Well, I hope so, at least. But at this stage, when I was doing this photo, I was already about maybe three or three and a half years into the photography game. So I was able to you know, create a little following and like uh, had a, a few friends and connections within the industry who were willing to help. So all I had to do was say I had a concept and they were already in and they were already down. Nice. So I wasn't too worried about like, you know, explaining it to them. But I also wanted that genuine emotion on their faces. I wanted it to genuinely be like, what the fuck? Wait, did you record like a, like a behind the scenes video for this project? Um, there is a quick time lapse uh, of the people. So yes, there is a behind the scenes video. Dude, so I can should have, send that you to you if you totally, like. Well, not right now, but you should have totally yeah. had someone there like filming a BTS for this shoot because I would have loved yeah, to see these people's true, faces when true. they were like walking in true. or like when they were like... The, I, I that was the plan, that. to be fair. That was the plan to have someone filming it. But then, uh, you know, it got to a point where it was very hectic and stuff, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah. But anywho um so yeah i basically told everyone nothing and just told them to come through and the way we set up the studio was essentially um so there was so you walk in through the door and there were basically just these two big black um pieces of wallpaper kind of like put up like colorama put up mm -hmm. and then you have to walk to the side and then you'll see like the whole wings but when you walk in through the door you don't actually see anything but black uh, and until you turn left and then turn the corner so there was that genuine kind of like you know suspense of like what was actually going to be in the photo so um i told everyone to come through and then i organized the day where like essentially you know groups would come in gradually so it'll be a group of five people come in first i'll place them and then et cetera, et cetera, and then i'll place it all and compose the image so um i was taking this photo from an elevated point of view obviously so i was about uh there was probably like a flight of stairs and i was at the very top i was looking down and i saw everything um then you know the first group came in and i was basically like a guy with a loud horn just like right group one you're going to there uh that person i like how you look so you're gonna move over there you're gonna go behind icarus but like when they first came band. in there were exactly and but 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 like you know seeing their faces when they first came in that was so sick because I was legit like, yo, they're actually shook. Um, and, you know, obviously, the, so the story behind this concept itself was essentially what if Icarus fell to Earth in 2019 at the time? Because um, obviously we got this classical art depiction of him mm -hmm. falling to Earth in ancient Greece. 
But what if he fell to earth now? How would we react or how would you know people react? And in my head, I was thinking, we'd probably just, you know, surround him and take photos of him, if that's I'm completely honest. Are we'd you kidding me? That's, that's exactly what we do. Like, we're, we're not, we're no, we're just chimpanzees down here, man. We would all be doing exactly what exactly. this photo says or what, what it's showing. Exactly. Sorry. We'll all, we'll all just go over and be like, yo, check this out, guys. Oh my God. <laughs> and like, and the and guy holding the up the selfie for 50, what exactly. is it, quid or pounds or something? Yeah, I don't know. quid. Here's the thing. Like, you know, there's already salespeople coming in profiting off of this guy's demise. And here's what, I, and the message I'm trying to say is pretty much that. You know, we are living in a society or a generation where rather than going to help someone out, we'd rather first <laughs> document slash think of ways we could potentially profit from their demise. Uh... Um, and it's a very sad reality, but that again coincides with the theme of the series, which was using beautiful imagery to tell the sad story. Beautiful sad. So I I wanted people to look at this image and be like, wow, that's beautiful. But then the longer they looked, they'd be like, holy shit, this is meant to be, you know, this is meant to be a reflection of how bad we are. Yeah. And the original like... painting okay, is called sorry. The Lament. Sorry. Uh, the original painting was called The Lament for Icarus. I want people to ask, who are we really lamenting now? Ooh. Is it Icarus or is it us? Ooh. And that's the whole point of the series. I wanted to ask that question of like, who should we really be feeling sad for? Now in this photo, it's you know I wanted everyone to obviously feel sad for Icarus, but to feel sad for everyone around them. Now back to the day, you know that's when I started bringing in all the people, positioning them and stuff. Um, and if you see the actual raw photo from straight out the camera, it's pretty much exactly the same, um, except the background. Now obviously on the uh -huh. day it was just all black backdrop. It was all just black backdrop, and everyone was just against black. Um, now, this is where my art background came in. So I basically got a photo of London skyline and then I traced it um, using just like pencil. And then I painted it with watercolors and then I photo imposed that into the black backdrop that was part of this image. And then using Photoshop, I would add in all the colors in the background add uh -huh. in the clouds and the smoke blah 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 to make it look even more like a classical painting yeah make it look to more make it look more blend exactly and then once i had that that's when i started the editing process of making all the colors uniform making it look flat and a huge part of my process especially for this photo was making the shadows a little lighter than usual um so it's a little gray rather than full black and that kind of creates that kind of like flatness across the image where i'm kind of essentially getting rid of depth if that makes sense but it shows to detail when you do flat. that you can like you see a little bit more detail when you do stuff like mm -hmm. that exactly where i wanted it to look like there was i wanted it to look flat in 2d but still have depth because here you can still see like you can obviously see the crowd in the front is meant to be the foreground then you've got the middle plane of the wings and then you've got the people in the back and then you've got the image and then you've got the city in the very back yeah so there's obviously still that 3d-ness but it's still done in a way where it looks like a two-dimensional painting yeah and, and it that's looks where like I, you know, and it looks like you lit it from if you're looking if, if i was you taking the photo it looks like you lit it from like the top left down yep yep so we had uh rather than because we didn't really have have um, any big lights 
So I'm pretty sure on that day, we just had seven <laughs> strobe flashes, seven softboxes all on one side. Holy shit. You took, you it, took the, uh, what is it? The uh, uh, Robert Deacon approach? Roger Deacons, exactly. Sorry, we just sorry, had Rob, a Roger, shit ton of lights on one side Deacon and then boom. Dude, mm -hmm. I mean, that commentary, of the, like the point you're trying to get across here is it's so painfully accurate where it's like no one's worried about mm -hmm. the fact that this poor person who might be an angel, whatever, has mm -hmm. fallen and is could be hurt. Mm -hmm. There, No one like, I mean, photo, no one's yeah. helping them. Literally, the guy closest to him is taking a selfie. With yeah, him. exactly. I was going to say, like, if you look at that guy, who's I'm gonna friend, zoom in another if you're really watching. good friend of mine, Edward. He's like, what's up? He's, he's there, like, like, he's like, hey, yo, he's an angel. What's legit, up? Yo? He's like, yo, check me out. Exactly, exactly. He's legit, like, yo, check me out, check me out. Look at this guy. Yeah, he did. Like, but this, yeah, but this that, photo, that there's so there's so many other elements. Like, you, you could spend like an hour looking at this photo and just picking out little elements, like the mm -hmm. girl, like the girl behind him, like the girl above him, the guy who's holding a sign pointing at him, like. Like mm -hmm. it, it has that painterly quality where it's not just like most photography where you look at it and you get it. You kind of set it up in a way where you have to spend time and, and just like digest mm -hmm. this photo. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to do is, uh, with most of my work now is to have that kind of like deeper allegorical meaning, but also have lots of mini narratives, lots of mini stories. And um, with the whole process of me drawing out the concept before, it allows me to do lots of that, where like every little thing that you see in most of my big concepts is thought about, is was like thought over, um, where like the placement of like one red lamp in the background was probably like, you know, thought about, like, I, I like to make sure that every little thing has a little meaning. So, um, you know, in Icarus, we had the guy that was holding the feather we had the guy like holding up the sign that says selfies and there's one little blink if you'll miss it kind of detail that i don't think you'll be able to see on the copy of the image that you have because it's very small um but if you zoomed in a lot and a lot and a lot on one of the girls' phones um and she's a beautiful asian girl called jay on one of her phones it actually says in chinese um stand with hong kong because oh. as a Hong Kong person um, and with all the political, you know, turmoil that's going on in Hong Kong and China, I always try and sneak in that message into every big concept that I do. Stand of Hong Kong, solidarity with Hong Kong. So, you know, even in Icarus, even in my biggest piece, I've hidden that message. So, yeah, there's lots of little Easter eggs. There's lots of little, you know, nooks and crannies that people can find if they look. Yeah, that's... That's insane. I mean, I wish I could do that, but I literally screenshot it off Instagram, which already mm. poops on any quality. Photo you put on there. Yeah. Yeah. But, mm. oh man, I would honestly, I would love to see that in real life. Like that photo, like this is one of those examples where internet mm. photos don't do real photos justice. Mm. Like the photos I, I saw agree. of you at your exhibition where that thing was like, I don't know, 36 by 46 or some crazy size. Like it was 40 by 50, 40 by 50. Someone bought that, right? Huge. Someone bought that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's say if someone did it, yes, they, are, they are stupid if you if they didn't. I, I, I would have given my left testicle that day. I'd have been like, chop it off right here, bro. Like, I don't got the money, <laughs> but, but I need this photo. But, but like, That's good. But, but like, I need this photo because I know in like 10 years, this photo is is like gonna be worth like so much more money. But <laughs> But yeah, no, that's I will give my left nut. <laughs> yeah, it's my right that's one. Good, it's big. My right that's one's good. a big one, anyways, right? So like you, know, you, need, you need the left one. Right? Uh, but like 
Oh, dude, I, I just, I, I just, Thanks, I mean, man. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, I think it's important that people realize that like you only get like 20% of a photo when you're looking at it on this flat screen yeah, when it's true. like professionally Very printed true. and presented and like, mm -hmm. that's the importance mm -hmm. of like art exhibitions. But, mm. um, yeah, like, well, if, if, if anyone in LA is listening, um, when the pandemic's all over and stuff, uh, a copy of the image is actually now on show in the lost Warhols gallery. Um, so yeah, you can check that out if you're in LA. Hey. Oh, no way. It's super lit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Then, I mean, 2020 had lots of plans. Like, I had loads of plans for 2020 where I was going to do exhibitions in uh, New Exactly, exactly. I was going to do an exhibition in New York. I was going to do another exhibition in LA. Um, but, you know, all this crazy stuff happened. But, you know, at the end of the day, plans will be remade. Um, so I'm not too, you know, I'm, I'm not too sad about it. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, and this is something that we mentioned we want to talk about. And, and it's like your mm -hmm. strong feelings towards what's going on in China, because mm -hmm. I feel like you, you are way more educated on this subject. And it's something that keeps coming up, that keeps coming up and something that just kind of keeps, in my opinion, mm -hmm. from where I'm at, it just, it's, it's unjustly swept under the rug under like everything going on right. under COVID under all the racist right. reform, which needs to happen. But you know, Right. What's going on in China is is really fucking scary, and I don't know if I yeah. know the whole story, but in please correct me after I say this, but like essentially, um, Hong Kong after the hundred year treaty or the hundred year agreement mm -hmm. was given back to uh, the the Chinese government, and yep. Hong Kong existed as like a separate entity from China, and mm -hmm. and it and it was uh like capital democracy well, as where the red. And the rest of China is very much communist, but now that it's going back to the Chinese government, they're mm -hmm. they're trying to influence Hong Kong to be more like the rest of China, and and mm -hmm. and with that comes um, like all the civil unrest and all the protests and everything going on. Right. Yeah. I mean that 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 was a pretty good summary. That was a pretty good summary. Um, so the main thing is, <clears throat> um, let, let's go a little bit more in depth. Because I think that was a very good, like, yeah, that was a very good, um, quick summary. But it's actually a lot scarier uh, oh, when sure. you go more in depth. Let's do it. Um, so, as you said, Hong Kong was given back to um, China after Britain's rule, and it was kind of like a, it was like a separate entity, but to a certain extent, where at the end of the day, Hong Kong's government needs to answer to China. Uh, where, you know, at Hong Kong is led by a chief executive, which is the equivalent of, say, a prime minister here, here in London. Uh, but our chief executive still listens and has to obey to the president of China. So it's kind of like the governor, I guess you could say. Um, now, Hong Kong has its own separate set of laws and its own separate judiciary system. Uh, because that was part of the treaty when it was given back to China, the Britain said that if we are to give back Hong Kong, they need to basically have, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of journalism, freedom of press, uh, freedom of uh, religion, all of that usual good stuff, the good stuff we like. Um, but they will also have their own separate set of laws from China because 
you know, because they've had so much influence from the British Empire and British rule,、mm-hmm. you can't just have them immediately go to Chinese like I don't want to say it, but dictatorship. Like that, you can't have that like boom immediately dictatorship. So that was part of the deal, and China were like, "All right, cool, sounds good, sounds good." So ever since,、um, at first in the beginning, you know, from what my parents say at least, it was all right. You know, things were good. You know,、uh, with China's economy booming and its rising power as like a global superpower at the time, so,、uh, obviously they are the superpower now. But at the time, they were still rising, and trade was really good in Hong Kong, thanks to the British.、Um, and don't get me wrong, this whole the whole British colonial thing started from a very dark past as well.、Um, and I'm not trying to say that you know, oh, British rule was all great and perfect.、Um, But that is that is kind from, of random. You know, a huge war. Yeah, that that is random. That Britain controls the most like prominent city in China, which is like. Like that—that that、mm. itself so the, is, is kind of weird. So the story behind that was essentially—I know we're like you know we're kind of veering off the topic right now, but yeah, we have.、Um, the story behind that is essentially Britain and China went into war over opium. So this is the opium wars back in the day, and essentially、um, Britain was supplying the Chinese with opium. That was the main thing. And a Chinese government official, who I don't remember his name, unfortunately, it was a really cool name actually. But he was like, "Fuck the Brits, fuck opium," and he poured all the he poured all the opium into the sea. He burnt all the opium. Whoa! And then the Brits were like, "Whoa! You just you know you just completely fucked our trade. We're going to war." Oh shit! So Britain and China fought a war, and China got absolutely destroyed. Destroyed, like they got wrecked. <laughs> oh,、um, and the guy in ch- the guy in charge of defense of、um, of China, he's universally, well, ch- in at least in China and Hong Kong, he is known as being the most incompetent fucker of all time.、Uh, but basically, yeah, he got absolutely destroyed. The Chinese got destroyed, and so、um, they had to come to an agreement of a surrender.、Mm-hmm. So China were like, "All right, we'll give you Hong Kong, and we'll end the war." And the Brits were like, "Cool, we'll take Hong Kong, trading port. We、we'll、like, we like it. We、we'll、like it." So, so, so then, Hong Kong, Hong Kong then was just a trading port. It wasn't the massive thing that it was now. It was just like a common trading、mm-hmm. port.、Okay. It, it was, it was, it was kind of you know, it was getting there. It was getting there, but it had very humble beginnings.、Um, but its position in terms of strategic position and the fact that it's like at the south of China and then it opens up to the sea as as and the trading port, you know. It proved to be a very good asset to the British Empire, and China knew that, and Britain knew that. So they were like, "All right, we'll take Hong Kong." Then there was actually another war,、um, and China lost again, and then Britain got a little bit more land. But that's how Hong Kong came to be under British rule. Okay. Now back to, and now let's fast forward. Go through time、um, here. Now, exactly. <laughs> now Hong Kong.、Um, Has been given back to China, and in the beginning, you know, people were like, "All right, this isn't too bad." There were obviously lots. There was obviously lots of fear, nonetheless, of, "Oh, you know, is China's is the Chinese Communist rule going to come back? Are we going to suffer?" So lots of people actually immigrated from Hong Kong at this point to Canada, 
to to London, et cetera, et cetera, to America. At, at, what, at, what, at what point are you talking about? Like around what time? Like around what year? This is around 1997. And so, so around 1997, that's, that's when the, the, the British grip on Hong Kong was starting to loosen up and go back to China. Yep. Okay. So 1997 is the year that Britain gave Hong Kong back. Um, and prior to that, there were lots of talk. Uh, I mean, it was already kind of like lots of fear. So in the early 90s and stuff, people were already immigrating from Hong Kong to the rest of the world. Okay. But especially what, when it actually happened, there was still lots of fear. But then the first few years, you know, people, things were all right. Things were pretty good. You know, we culture was booming. Money was booming. People were like, all right, this is good. This is good. Then 2003 uh, is a very, very seminal moment in Hong Kong history. Mm. Now, <clears throat> the reason why I had to make a point about Hong Kong having a separate law system and a separate judiciary system is very important is because in China, there's heavy censorship about Tiananmen Square Massacre. Now, this is just one example, and it's, the, it's just the easiest example. There's obviously lots of other crazy shit going on. Mm -hmm. But for those of you who don't know, in 1989, so this is prior to Hong Kong being given back, in 1989, a bunch of students in China, they wanted the right to vote for their leader. They wanted democracy and they wanted civil rights and they wanted human rights. So they went and did a peaceful protest. And key word here is peaceful. Very similar to, you know, everything that's going on right now, which I'm very, you know, I'm very glad is happening. You know, people came together. They were doing peaceful marches. Uh, they went to Tiananmen Square, which is the big city square in, in Beijing, the capital of China. And they were all just camping there. They were doing, they were singing songs. They were doing hunger strikes. It was nothing major. They weren't even doing any property damage. They didn't, you know, destroy stuff. They didn't burn shit on fire. They were all just chilling. And it was all students that were like, you're younger than me. There were students of like 17, 18, mm. 20. All generations were there. And it was all, it was a beautiful, you know, few days of people just wanting, uh, you know, a better world for them. Uh, June 4th, 1989, China, the Chinese government sent in the army to, you know, disperse the crowds, disperse the riots that they said the, that was happening. And this is in Tanks Beijing. Were sent in. Sorry, sorry. This is in yeah, Beijing, is the not capital. Hong Kong. Okay. Yeah, this is Beijing, uh, capital of China. So tanks were sent in and live rounds are fired. People were killed legit the army just went in and they just started shooting the shooting started kids half my age were being shot boom 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 and by the morning of june 5th the square was just bodies just bodies now the official number was never the official number from china is a couple dozen 70 at max uh, that these rioters were quelled and they were just social unrest and they were just you know, um, anarchists, when in fact, the estimates are at least 70 to 100,000 students were killed that day. Lots went missing. Whoa, 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 whoa. I was not expecting mm -hmm. that number. S yep. Seven, even if, let's just go low, 70,000. That's a fuck ton of people to kill, of your own people, of young people. Of your own people. Lives ahead of, of your them. own. 
young new generation the next generation Holy. of china so it was a huge event it's obviously a massacre. um I mean, that's, that's, that's... it was a massacre that's why you know it's called the massacre and yeah lots of you know lots of kids that genuinely just wanted a brighter future for china were killed just like that and now ever since that happened china refuses refuses to even acknowledge or talk about it it's erased from all chinese history books you're not allowed to mention it it's heavily censored when you search june 4th in china nothing comes up if you talk about june 4th you're immediately shushed by family members if you talk about it in public they have grounds to actually come up to you and arrest you for defamation of the state so this is why having a separate law system in hong kong is so important because in china you could be committing treason for simply bringing up something that happened in china's past wow. now that's just an example that's just one example so in china uh there's still aversion therapy for homosexuality there's still shock aversion therapy for homosexuality yes uh people still go missing you know people go missing all the time because they're trying to you know spill the beans about what's going on in china and a quick example would be look at the doctors that were trying to say what was happening in terms of covid we had a oh. few big so-called whistleblowers right that they were saying oh the situation in china is really bad boom silence boom gone you've got artists like ai weiwei um people like he was an artist a very, a very celebrated artist and he was trying to say and talk about the bad things going on in china he was put on house arrest his people that knew him so simply knew him were put on house arrest well, his so wife sorry interject yeah you were saying the, sorry. the thing the thing with ai weiwei is that I, him speaking out, he was such a prominent figure that you couldn't just take him away. Otherwise, like they, I think they were of course, yeah. at that point to realize if we just take this mm -hmm. guy away, we might cause him we don't want. But there's oh, people yeah. on the daily, and you can hear about this, and it's on the low. Is like they just disappear, mm -hmm. like you said, like no questions exactly. asked. And exactly, they're not famous. So oh they yeah, just, hundred percent gone, put in the back of a, of a wagon, never heard of again. Mm -hmm. If Ai Weiwei wasn't Ai Weiwei, he'd be dead. He'd be yeah. dead. Yeah, the I only mean, reason he got house arrest was because he was Ai Weiwei. Yeah, and there's like a recent account of like a journalist who was who was like drunkenly just like saying light bad things about the government, and the the government mm -hmm. showed up at his door and they were like interrogating him. Why were you saying these things? Like it's mm -hmm. that like mm -hmm. under control over you better not yep. say some bad shit about the Chinese government. Like even even yep. a slight, even a slight, and you may not mm -hmm. be here tomorrow. Like that's wild, dude. Like that's a wild society to live in. Yep so people often say like oh you know um people people often talk about like north korea or like nazi germany or communist russia but and they often forget that this shit is still happening now in china um so yeah so uh, anyway but with like with all of that that's going on in china it's very important that hong kong didn't have the same thing it didn't have the same laws so britain made sure that that was part of the treaty so back to the original point i was making 2003 in hong kong came and some uh politicians and lawmakers in hong kong proposed something called article 23. now article 23 is essentially it kind of talks about 
treason and selling of state secrets. Now I'm going to go a little bit into that. So Article 23 would have basically uh, been introduced into Hong Kong's law, where if you talk about if you sell state secrets or have sedition or some or what, what's the proper term? Okay, yeah, okay. And the easiest way of saying it is, if you chat shit about China, you get thrown into prison. Essentially, oh. they wanted to introduce that law to Hong Kong. Now, you might be thinking like, okay, well, yeah, well, you're selling state secrets and being a traitor. That's fair enough. Like, I don't want a traitor in my country. You can get, yeah, fair enough. You can get thrown into prison for being a traitor. But that's not the but small then that's where. But that's, yeah, but that's when the gray area comes. What is defined as a traitor? And if you look at the example set in China of how you talking about June 4th is already deemed as a traitorous act, and if we had introduced this law, that would be the same thing. And it would allow China to come in to Hong Kong and basically silence, silence anyone. So that's why Article 23 was such a very scary thing, because you're like, wait a minute, this? whoa, hold on. This was in 2003. Oh, shit. So... The Hong Kong people rose up and people were like, fuck this shit. And 500,000 people went onto the streets and they marched. And they were like, we don't want Article 23. I was there. I was young as fuck. My parents were there. My whole family there. Everyone I knew were on those streets wow. protesting. And it worked. And the government said, okay, yeah, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. It's all Gucci. It's all Gucci. We and nothing on. bad and happened? Like, right. like they, didn't, they didn't fuck with the crowd or the protesters or nothing? Yep. Nothing, nothing bad happened. Nothing bad happened. And now all was good. All was right. good. So then from that moment onwards, um, on, on the 1st of July, which is um, the day that Hong Kong, uh, which is China's national day, on the 1st of July, it became a Hong Kong tradition of we go onto the streets and we protest fighting for the same rights that the students in 1989 in Beijing fought for. Mm. So we wanted true democracy. We wanted human rights. We wanted civil rights. Every year on the 1st of July, we would do that march. And you might be thinking, okay, maybe there's a couple thousand people, blah, blah, blah. Every year since 2001, there have been at least 250,000 people. At least. Like, at least 250K people go out into the streets. I went to, I'm pretty sure I went every year. And, when the, I was and there. is this across the entire country of China or just in like Beijing or just, this in, is Hong just in Hong Kong? This oh, is just in Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. This was a Hong Kong thing because in Beijing, you're not allowed to. Oh yeah, you're in right. In China, right. you wouldn't be allowed to do any of this shit. Mm. So this is what we were fighting so hard for was the fact that in Hong Kong, you, you can do this without being thrown in prison. So we wanted to fight for ourselves, but we also wanted to fight for the people in China our brothers and sisters who don't have this right to voice their opinion, to want to say they want democracy, we'll fight for them. We'll do the marching for them. So every year we would do that. And on top of that, every year on the 4th of June, we would have a memorial service for those who gave their lives in Beijing in 1989, where we sit in a park, we sing songs, we hold up candles. So that's a Hong Kong tradition. That's pretty much now known as the Hong Kong spirit. 1st of July, we fight for democracy. 4th of June, we remember our fallen comrades. Hong Kong's identity has always been we don't we would we will not take shit and we'll always fight for 
uh, fight for justice. We'll fight against tyranny. We'll fight against injustice. That's always been the thing. Yeah. Now, woo, finally, we're catching up to current events. So about a year ago now, almost exactly a year ago now, um, lawmakers in Hong Kong once again proposed something very similar to Article 23 that was overturned in 2003. Oh. And this time, this time, the law was essentially, uh, it was called the extradition law, extradition law, and extra, extradition, extra, to extradite, extradition, yeah, yeah extradition, extradition law. Yeah, sounds good, sounds good. Yeah, yeah, sounds right, that sounds right. And essentially it is criminals in Hong Kong would be able to be extradited to China to be tried. Ooh. Now, you, again, you might be, think, you might be thinking, ah, fair enough, criminals are criminals. And then you think about the exact same thing like in 2003, what's deemed as a criminal is very up to China now because they can just be like, oh, you chat shit about China in 2006. We're going to extradite you to China where our laws apply because you guys have your own laws, right? We'll respect that. We'll let you keep your laws. So we're going to set up a new law which allows us to take criminals out of your jurisdiction what a to our sneak, jurisdiction. What a sneaky thing to do. Right? Right? So that's the law that they proposed. And Hong Kong was like, fuck this. And then this is when the records were broken. 2.5 million people came out in Hong Kong and marched against this law. 2.5 million peaceful when, protests. When was this? This was one year ago today. Okay. Pretty much one year ago today. Yeah. Okay, 2.5 million. That. I remember seeing a lot of imagery mm -hmm. and videos, at least what could get out from China, because we all know mm -hmm. that it's the information and the Great Firewall right. China is like a real thing. But like, I remember, right. and, it, and it was like lightly covered in, in our news, which is kind of weird to me. Mm -hmm. But on the internet, mm -hmm. I remember seeing this. And I'm like, what is going on? Yep. Like people were going nuts. Because like, obviously this is a big thing. This is a big law. And if this law were to pass, then Hong Kong basically dies. So 2.5 million people came out. And it was peaceful protests, huge marches. I was there on that day with the 2.5 million. Then um, I came back to London. And the minute I came back to London, that's when things started going really bad for Hong Kong. So after I left, the protests continued. And at first, there was a semblance of victory because the government said, okay, we're going to shelf that law. We're going to shelf that idea now. We're not going to pass that law anymore. I would allow China to exercise. All right, we've got victory, yes. But now, as well as we're all out here, we're going to continue to fight for democracy. We want true democracy. We want to get these people that even proposed the law nice in the well. first place out of office, and we want to choose our own people. Nice. And so the, the marches and the protests continued. And then that's when the and then that's when you know people started getting a little bit more violent because. You know, w with these massive crowds always comes, you know, anarchy and violence. True. Um, so then, you know, more property but, was getting damaged. But, 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 also, but also to add on to that, like with the parallels of what we see in America right now is, is that mm -hmm. you can only peacefully protest for so long before you have to mm -hmm. really let people know that, that we mean business. True. Because yep. as, like, how many times have, have, have black people in America or just people for equality and racism peacefully protested that got nowhere so many times very and true so, very so true people to be surprised that people are rioting and in the, the side mm -hmm. aspect of looting which is so minor in the grand mm -hmm. scheme of things it's like you mm -hmm. have to at some point put your foot down and be like we're no longer going to mm -hmm. be peaceful about the shit we want this now. and that's the thing 
that's exactly what I was going to acknowledge as well. It's like when you think about it, and this is, you know, this is kind of like something that's unsaid in Hong Kong. When you think about it, we've been marching every year since 2001, 2003. We've been doing this every year. Nothing has changed. Nothing has happened. Yes, we were able to shelve a few of the big, you know, bad laws, which is good, but we still are nowhere near true democracy. We have nowhere near universal suffrage. So this is an anger, like you said, that's been pent up in the Hong Kong populace for years, decades even, even since the 1989 student massacre in Beijing. This pent up rage has been in Hong Kong for so long that all it took was a little spark and then the whole place would legit just be like, yeah, we're going to fight. And the minute there was any looting or any damage of property, that's when the government came up with their, you know, they had the actual excuse to send in police and riot force. Mm-hmm. And then that's when the police brutality came. Oh. Now, police and brutality, and that's and that's when I would see a lot of the videos on Live Leak. I started to cut you off. That's when I see a lot of mm-hmm. videos of Live Leak of the protesters. Like, it's it first started with the police hitting the protesters because there's from what I saw, mm-hmm. there's not as much gun use in China, but yep. a lot of like batons and shit. But then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. a week later, you start to see the protesters beat them up back. Like, if you even looked like mm-hmm. some sort of enforcer, they were just jumping you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was so framed thing. And, and it was framed in a way that made the protesters look really bad and that's exactly what i was going to say it, and the media especially in the chinese controlled media but i think western media is also guilty of that as well um is that they always framed it so that the the, the protesters were rioting and the police were just doing their duty but then when you actually look at the civilian caught footage or the footages of Love Live Leak and YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, or the independently owned news groups, you can see that it is police brutality. It's overt violence. Because, so at first, here we go, in the, in the very beginning, yes, it was basically, you know, police using batons, blah, 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 smoke bombs, tear gas. Then the protesters starting to, started to adapt. They started like, you know, they would bring umbrellas and it became known because umbrellas have been a huge iconography uh, significance in Hong Kong. And it's like, um, we hold umbrellas to deflect uh, tear gas. We hold umbrellas when it's raining, we don't care. We're always there to fight. Ah, okay. So there was, you know, we, we would use umbrellas to catch the tear bombs and then throw them back. We use umbrellas to like stab them back, stuff like that. People were fighting back. And then, you know, that's when the violence really, really went nuts. Like, you know, pe- things set on fire, blah, blah, blah. And then the killing started. And here's the thing. People don't really talk about this. And it's obviously all very tightly controlled and censored and very mysterious. But it first started with a kid half my age at the time. We was about... Okay, not half actually. No, that's that was like lol, that's a lie. He was like fifteen. He was fourteen, fifteen. He went onto the street and he was protesting as well. A cop shot him in the chest. Point blank just shot him. And there's even videos a little bit, yeah. There's videos where the guy was legit just chanting, cop comes up, shoots him right in the chest. And you're like, whoa. And then that's when the footage started coming out of Old old people 
60 years old plus, an old lady who was saying, you've been firing tear gas at us. We've taken your tear gas, blah, 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 blah. All we want is a voice. And she was just screaming and crying and saying, you're hurting our youth. You're killing our next generation for standing up for something so beautiful and you're killing them. And this was an old lady and she was speaking for you know, her generation and all the future generations. And she was just saying her mind and saying, you're hurting the future of Hong Kong. And guess what? A cop just went up to her and shot her in the face. Not with a rived bullet, but with a rubber bullet. But still. He shot her right in the still. face. Boom. You could kill journalist. a lady like that. Holy shit. Exactly. And then a journalist who was reporting it, she lost an eye because she was shot directly in the, in the, in the eye. Yeah, because you, you, know, you know you're supposed to bounce them off the ground, right? Like when you shoot a rubber right, Exactly, hard, exactly. Bounce, when you shoot, shoot rubber bullets, the... boom. Nah, they didn't give a shit about that shit. They would shoot you. And then um, that was when rubber bullets were still, uh, were still being used. But now it seems like live rounds have been fired as well. Um, and yeah, that's the thing. And then we've got lots of like people that would just be arrested just because they're associated with, uh, with rioters, you know, and it just went really crazy in Hong so, Kong. Hong so Kong has really become nuts. It's it's so <clears throat> crazy because you know, so so Hong Kong does have its own separate government from the rest of China China's government, right? But yep, it's so yep. obvious it, it makes sense to put two and two together to be like, okay, at what point does the Chinese government start to swallow up and take chokehold of this tradition of this Hong Kong government? And it's like these mm -hmm. people out in the in the streets protesting for all this stuff, for all this change. But essentially, the change they want is they want the lawmakers and the politicians to take their side and to fight back against the the the, the actual Chinese government. And like that's mm -hmm. you know that's what they're protesting for, right? Is 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 that change? But it it makes you wonder like how corrupt is this already? And like what do they even do? Like do the people have to literally go into the parliament and like? kill them themselves like because that's that's real revolution right is is where even the cops are like yeah we're not doing this mm -hmm. anymore because the only thing that's separating the lawmakers from the people is this line of cops and in the cops in their mind are doing their job protecting their family but at what point do the cops sit there and go you know what i'm with these people like let me help them out mm -hmm. and then you overthrow a government because in my mm -hmm. mind i don't know how else you get stuff done because i remember i saw a video quite recently where they were in like the hong kong government and they were trying to vote on something and they literally wouldn't mm -hmm. let the people come in and sit down to vote on something i don't mm -hmm. know what was going on or the details but there's a video where they're literally carrying this guy who's pro-democracy out of the court building so they could have an over oh, that happens vote. all the time that's that happens so, all the time that's so <laughs> nuts that is so that happens nuts all the time man and like, it's, it is really sad it is really really sad and the thing is like you know it has gotten to a point where lots of people in Hong Kong, um, I've just been saying, yo, what's the point of fighting? You know, what's the point of doing all this? You guys have been marching for so long now, for decades. And those students 31 years ago in Beijing fought for the exact same thing. Nothing has changed. So why do people still want to fight? And I think that's what's beautiful about Hong Kong and also what's happening over in America and across the world now is that it seems like people have finally had enough so of this right. bullshit. And people are finally taking a stand. And obviously, with such a huge magnifying glass on everything that's going on in America, you know, the, the, there's less kind of media coverage of Hong Kong situation because Hong Kong situation hasn't even died down. I mean, yes, COVID came, 
and you know it did kind of die down a little bit but then since covid had kind of eased up hong kong people went back on the streets immediately can I, and can they I were say, all wearing masks and so look yeah. i'm not a conspiracy theorist but that's a really easy one i'm just saying it's very ironic that at the height of the protest mm -hmm. covid all of a sudden is unleashed from china i'm just saying like why is no one putting this shit together like I'm kind of worried people have been at me saying that my window, but like, no, people have been saying that. Like, yeah, it's coming there out. Are that rumors. It's, a, it's coming out that it's a man-made virus. And what, what are the effects of it? It makes you social quarantine, stay inside and don't interact mm -hmm. with anything with anyone. That there are perfect, rumors. That's the perfect ingredient to quell a protest in the most indirect mm -hmm. way. Like, yep. Hello. Yep. Is, is no one else putting hello? This together? Indeed. Like that is nice. wild. It's true, man. What lots timing? Lots what? Lots, what timing? Right. Exactly. Lots of people in Hong Kong are actually saying that they're like, yo, come on. But yes, with COVID, even so, yeah, when, when COVID kind of like eased up a little bit, it's still going on now, obviously, but Hong Kong people still went out. They all wore wow. masks. They were all, you know, they all had protective gear. They still went out and they were like, yo, we, we are not going to let you forget this. And the police brutality has only gotten worse and worse because we've got news of kids going missing. Oh, uh, uni kids going missing. These are people that were known to be part of the protests. They would just go missing under COVID, and then people right? are like, okay, they had, they had they had COVID and they just went missing. And then here's the thing: their bodies would be found a few days later, washed up, <gasps> completely naked. And then you're like, what the fuck? And then here's the crazy shit: the police will release a statement, no suspicious circumstances. And you're like, bro, their body washed up after they were missing completely naked. What the fuck? And that's not even a one-off case. This happened seven times to seven people, boys and girls. Of Like, it's nuts. Whoa. So people have completely lost faith in the Hong Kong government and the Hong Kong police because the thing is, there's just so much footage of the police kind of just abusing their power. And now... It's it's gone to a point where it's not where gangster and police have become synonymous in Hong Kong. And people have no faith in the police. And what's even scarier is that the whole Big Brother surveillance system in China. Like I've seen a couple of videos exactly. that show the technology of it, and it's freaking mm -hmm. scary. The facial recognition, the facial all rec of that. They can even just see who you are. The social with the mask on thing that they got mm -hmm. going. Like yep. if you have like a certain yep. score, you can't even walk into certain buildings. Like yep. Mm -hmm. what kind of black mirror shit is this in in right exactly like, in that but but that technology is that in hong kong or is that just in like outside of no hong kong? yeah it's it's still in it's still mainly in china but that's the thing hong kong is slowly dying that's the sad thing about this and that's why i'm so and the hong kong people are so emotional and so passionate about this is because the hong kong that we've been fighting for for so long is slowly gone it's it basically gone. Eventually, yeah, eventually it's just and this, this, slowly, yeah. And the, the sad reality is it already is gone because um, recently, about two weeks ago, the, the security law was put into place. And basically it means that, you know, the laws that we were so scared about talking about fighting against will be put into use very, very soon. Um, so lots of people are living in fear. Lots of people are, you know, you know, they're probably going to leave. My family's, my family's still out there, and they still went and fought in the protests. They still went to the memorial service, even though it was banned, even though it became illegal. They still went.
Wow. So, you know, people in Hong Kong don't give up. And that's why I feel that in light of everything that's going on right now, that's why I'm very proud to be stand to, to you know to see finally people are standing up against racism that's always been there against police brutality that's always been there hong kong's been fighting this fight as well black people have been fighting this fight for generations i'm just glad that now people are finally being like yo enough is enough right there's like a global if... there's like a global mind revolution where people are saying exactly. no the few do not do not dictate our minds and tell us how we how the, the rest should feel it's like this global sweeping effect but on top of that it's like you know i don't want to downplay what's going on here but what we're dealing with here compared to what china and hong kong is dealing or what hong kong's dealing with it it kind of shadows us a little bit like that seems like way scarier of a situation mm -hmm. than us mm -hmm. at least at least here we still feel protected like mm -hmm. we're simultaneously still protected by our government and hate our government it's not mm -hmm. like in, it's not like in hong kong where if you outright hate them you might just disappear like that's yeah that, that's not gonna that's happen the, that's the crazy shit. yeah exactly and um and and, and just real quick there on top of that is that like the unique thing about America is is the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. And that whole amendment is about if if a government becomes too powerful, then we the people will bear arms and and destroy that government. And it's mm -hmm. so crazy to think that in a place like Hong Kong, like that doesn't even exist. Like that is yep. like a non-thought. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Um so yeah, like you know, the situation in Hong Kong is very is very is nuts right now. It's been going on for years. Um well very strongly for a year but it has technically been going on for years now um and you know i'm just glad that people around the world are fighting up are fighting against tyranny in any way or form and hopefully when you know when this whole american situation and the western situation is kind of calmed down a little bit and um you know people are are more conscious about these things they'll start to notice that how you know bad things are in hong kong as well and we can get a little bit more, you know, coverage as well. well I That'd mean, be nice. It's really interesting that you're using your voice and your pretty large platform to even speak on issues. Like, it's like, mm. you know, even though you're a very talented photographer, it's cool that you use that platform and you sneak it into your photos, like the fall of mm. and your different mm -hmm. kinds of concepts. And, you know, just mm -hmm. has that subtle awareness because it's important. If no one else is talking about it. Yeah, 100%. I think, I think, you know, if you as like an artist or anyone who's kind of built uh you know a little following or, or like any platform i think it is our duty to kind of try and raise awareness or like speak about things that we're passionate about now obviously there's lots of pros and cons to this um you know i know it can be annoying when like your favorite i don't know musician or artist is an activist and they're like constantly talking about stuff blah, blah. i know it can be annoying but at the same time you know, I feel like it is my responsibility as a Hong Kong citizen, as someone who's so passionate about my home that's dying um, to, you know, to talk about this, at least to at least, you know, shed a little light on the whole situation, because it seems like, you know, no one else would. So I feel like I need to. I mean, you're legit the only person in my mind even to bringing light to it. So I think it's cool that you do. Mm. You know, you can I, think, I mean, yeah. I know I know a few people who do know about it and I'm glad that like what I think the best thing that has come out or well, one of the few positive not few but one of the positive things that has come out of the whole situation that's going on right now is the fact that finally 
conversations are being had every day about racism, tyranny, and police brutality. Mm. Finally, this is part of everyone's conversations. And no matter, like, you know, you could say, oh, like, there's obviously lots of pros and cons to all of these causes and lots of fallacies, blah, 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 but at least people are talking about it. That's what I'm proud of. Because I don't want to make it into a competition where, like, oh, more people are talking about Black Lives Matter than Hong Kong. More people talk about Hong Kong than Venezuela. More people talk about Venezuela than in Chile, etc. I don't want to make it a competition. I'm just glad that people are talking about good things, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that's, and that's the beauty of, like, being an artist is that we can use our unique universal language mm -hmm. of imagery that everyone can mm -hmm. do and, and to show a message, to explain it in a way mm -hmm. that's, that's a little different, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's a power that I don't think most artists even could comment on, on these classical paintings that you're such a big fan of. It's like, you don't see any activism or anything in there because I don't mm -hmm. think they even could back then. Oh, ah, well, here's an actual interesting little point. Ooh. So there, there is a painting. Um, damn, I need to remember what it, who it's by. Oh, okay, okay, it will come to me, it will come to me. But essentially, there was a painting by Ruben. There we go. Uh, uh, the painter Ruben, he did a painting um, because he was the court painter of the King of Spain, but he was also the court painter for the King of France. Wow. So he was basically, you know, he, he was well connected, you know what I'm saying? He did paintings for everyone. Now, France and Spain at the time were on the brink of war. They were going to go to war. I don't know. I, I'm not sure what time period this is exactly or what the war was about. So Ruben was commissioned to do a piece for the King of Spain. Now, he didn't want there to be a war. So he did this beautiful, big piece. And it's essentially just, you know, opulence in the very, in the foreground, you had like grapes and, you know, beautiful kind of like ornaments. And he had beautiful women and beautiful men. And he also, and they also, here's the, here's the cool thing. He also did portraits of the children of the King of Spain. And he put them into the front row of his children kind of like all being very happy, blah, blah, blah. Um, now, all of that was very beautiful and nice and golden. Wait, one sec, my, my Mac is about to die. Oh, yeah, yeah, noise, oh, noise. Oh, yeah. All right, you're saying about this painting? So um, he did portraits of the king's children and put them into the front of this piece as well. And he had them all framed all very beautifully with very beautiful light. But he also sneaked in some um, Greek mythological kind of gods in. And, and you had um, Athena. Um, and she was there. And she had, you know, her beautiful kind of helmet. She had a shield. And she was just there kind of behind all this opulence, all this beauty. And then in the very back, in the very background, he had a city on fire. And then he had a soldier coming with helmet and sword towards the beautiful scene in the front mm -hmm. and he had Athena using her shield to block that soldier from coming and that soldier was coming with a vet like you could see on his face yeah. he was going to kill these people and then so when you zoom out and look all the way out you will see a beautiful scene in the front and a burning city in the back and then he had the children of the king in the foreground, part of all these beautiful scenes. Now, everyone in the painting is looking in different directions except one person. 
one of the children looking directly at the audience. So the painter Rubin, through this one painting, essentially says, this is the beauty of peace. This, and in the back, is war. War is coming for peace. And what would be sacrificed? Your children. The happiness of your children would be lost wow. if you let war come to the city. Wow. So through this one piece was such a message. Boom. Ruben averted war with art. Boom. That's what? right, ladies and gentlemen. You're That's telling the me bad shit. You're telling me that between Spain and France, through this Mad. one. Wow. Wow. Mad. So there we go. So yes, art has always been the political tool. Art can always have an impact. Art can always have a message. Boom. Dude, that's heavy. Ruben, baby. I can't wait to look that one up after this. That's insane. Wow, I had no idea. At least I think the war was verdict. War might have happened a few years later anyway, but the intent was there. The intent was there. And I think that's an amazing story. When I read about it, I was like, what? This is sick. Uh, so, I mean, um, it's, it's, it's like the photo of T- so, Tiananmen yeah. Square. The, the photo of Tiananmen Square of the person in front of the tank. That's, that was a world-changing exactly. photo, too. Exactly. You know, there that- we go. So, yeah, 100%. Like, photos and art has always had that impact. Has, could always have that message. Um, and I think that is something that I'm trying to embrace as well. Because... Um, you know, I feel like, like we were talking about before, it is my duty and my responsibility and uh, to, you know, use my platform to say something. So I've, so the whole series between harsh reality and utopian beauty has, you know, some have political messages and some just have messages about us as humanity. We've got Icarus, you know, about us being, you know, profiteering off of uh, demise. We've got Venus, who's, you know, so vain and vanity and pride. So yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. And and I think you do a good job of it. And it's so funny that, it's not even funny, but the parallels of your film background into your photography is they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And you definitely have a style. Like your work is becoming more and more film-like and thematic where you look at Mm -hmm. a photo and you just think of like this whole situation outside of it, what's going on. And that's that's like a different level of photography where it becomes more... um, like it, it tells a story and you're conveying more than just a simple mm-hmm. idea of, you know, mm-hmm. like looking at your work, someone could easily be, be f- con- like confused by, Oh, it's a half naked, beautiful woman. Yeah. That's cool. Like, and, and that's like one level. That's like the first level, but you have to get past that mm-hmm. because you're saying mm-hmm. so much more. And, and, and on top of that, mm-hmm. this is something that when I was thinking about this interview, I was like, I need to tell him this and I'm going to pull up this photo real quick so I can make this point. And it is something very interesting that I've kind of noticed, like about the sort of mm-hmm. evolution of art in the photography medium. And that's, and I'm sharing this photo with you because this mm. photo, this photo for me, which I know is from like your ethereal series, um, it, mm-hmm. it starts to start for me, it starts to start the conversation of photography being pushed past just photography. Like you're doing mm-hmm. more here, like you're combining photography with, I think like your graphic design 
background or some mm-hmm. sort of editing skills. And you're almost mm-hmm. creating mm-hmm. this new medium or this new sort of mm-hmm. art form, which is very like profound to say, but like it is, mm-hmm. it's like, it's, you're taking this old no, medium of photography you. and mixing it with this new digital medium. And you're, and you're doing this thing because this photo, it, it kind of looks like a painting. Like if someone showed me this, I would mm-hmm. think that maybe this was a painting. So mm-hmm. like, so yeah, that that's that's what I was trying to say in the beginning. Where like I I want to try and make my photos look like paintings. Yeah. Um, but but thank you for that comment though. Thank you. However, I would have to I would have to say I can't take full credit for that. Of course. Um, I think. Wait, why not? Why, is... why, why? Of course. Why not? Take all the credit, bro. Come on, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to dig uh, okay, up uh, you here. Uh, 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 <laughs> hey, hey, let's go. Let's go, baby. Yeah, redefine. That's me. But I think. Um, I think uh, on that note, though, I feel that there is a, there is one photographer that, for me, has truly redefined photography and what it could be. Whoa. And he's a photographer called Tim Walker. Now you might oh, have heard of him. I love Tim Walker, dude. His yes. editorials are insane. Exactly, exactly. And for me, Tim Walker. Um, there are a few other photographers very much like him. There's a guy called Miles Aldridge, he's uh, great Gregory Crudson uh guy bourdon i would say that these guys they are the ones that have truly brought photography into the realms of art um i mean tim walker yes he's mainly known for his fashion editorials but it's just you know he he has the exact same process of he likes to do sketches of his photos before he takes them that's where i kind of like you know i was like yo if tim walker is doing it as well surely i must be onto something Mm -hmm. and like, you know, Tim Walker, Gregory Crudson, these guys are storytellers. At the end of the day, what's so great about their work is that, yes, it looks good. Yes, it sells a product if it is an ad or an editorial. But the main thing is it looks like, I mean, it is a story. You know, it's a story. And the first photo that really blew my mind of Tim Walker was when I was at when I didn't actually know who Tim Walker was. Wait, wait can I guess it? Can I guess it? Can I guess it before you say it? Okay, all right, here we go. It's it's the photo of the girl in the fish tank. Ah, good guess, good guess. Oh, it wasn't. wasn't it. Okay. it wasn't. Okay, okay. It wasn't. Um, but this was, I think, two thousand and eleven or ten, around then. It might be like, you know, give or take a year or so. And it was essentially just an Alexander McQueen uh, editorial. And it was just a a girl in a beautiful dress, but she was next to Humpty Dumpty. Humpty fucking Dumpty, like a big egg, like a big egg guy. And I was, and as a kid, I was like, why is Humpty Dumpty there? And my my mom was like, I don't know. It was just a cool photo, I guess. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was sort of flipping through the editorial page. I think it was in Vogue or something. And I just flipped through. And it was just like a girl in Alexander McQueen dresses on a farm on a beautiful day. And it's just the story of Humpty Dumpty going on around her. And then you see like Humpty Dumpty at first like jumping around. And then at the end, you just see him cracked. And it's just her in the dress kind of like. <gasps> and I was like, oh, my God, I just had a I had an emotional connection to Humpty Dumpty. I just wanted to see how he was doing. <laughs> And he was posing with like a like a hot girl. I didn't know he was gonna die. So at the end, I was like, "Oh no!" And then that was when I was like, "Yo, this guy just made me emotionally connect to Humpty Dumpty when he was selling dresses for Alexander McQueen." 
And I was like, yo, this guy just told me a story through photos. And I was, and it blew my mind. And I was like, oh my God, photography can be so much more than just, you know, just a photo. And that stuck with me. And then when, you know, now, so now when we're talking about photographers that have truly redefined, I mean, um, fa- <laughs> thank you for even like mentioning me, but I think, yeah. you know, I need to give credit to the, the true people that have inspired me and have, and have been truly redefining. And that is Tim Walker, Miles Aldridge, Guy Bourdain. And without these people, you know, we wouldn't see this new age of Nadia Lee. We wouldn't see, you know, um, uh, David LaChapelle, blah, blah, blah. Without them, yeah. without Tim Walker, I, I know, you know, some of them have like similar time frames, but for me, they are the ones that truly redefine photography. Well, and, and, and I'm probably going to butcher this quote and I, I kind of forget who said it, but it, it goes, I've only seen further by standing on the shoulders of giants. Ooh, Ooh, you know, that's you know, a nice it, quote. I've never heard that one before. Yeah. It, I, I think it was, uh, edit, uh, Franklin who said that and. And I always get the most okay. insane visual whenever I think of that. And, it, and it's, it's such a way to homage mm. people like these great photographers who who have given the way. But here 100%. you are on the shoulders just looking out and doing something new because they gave you that perspective. The same exactly. way it's like – Exactly. Like it's so funny because my first encounter with Tim Walker was that fish series. It was an, it was an mm. old – Beautiful. Uh, it was an old W editorial that my um, yep. friend just had in a pile of magazines just for an aesthetic. And mm. I was looking at the old editorials wow. and I saw this and I was like, I had never seen something wow. like this. I was like, right. What the fuck exactly. is this? Is this dude on? Like it was a fashion editorial for these beautiful dresses, but mm-hmm. he created this mm-hmm. whole world where it was about this fish girl being trapped in a cage and then eventually like exactly. dying when she was like kept like brought out of her cage, like in release of beauty. And I was just like, mm-hmm. This is so wow. next level. And the thing about Tim Walker is exactly. that he's, he's very anonymous. Like you can't find shit mm-hmm. about Tim Walker. I've tried. Like you, you yep. he doesn't have mm-hmm. an Instagram. He doesn't have a website. Like he only exists in mm-hmm. magazines, which is so insane to me. Mm-hmm. He's a ghost. He's a badass. <laughs> he is a motherfucking badass. Dude. He had an exhibition here in London uh, Are you a couple serious? months ago. It was fucking great. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, no, he's he was amazing. Dude. He was amazing. I right before you- COVID, it was amazing. I kid you not. It is my goal with this podcast to have people like Tim Walker on. Like I, I, I hope one day. I'm so serious. I hope one day I can have people like him on, like people like Miles Aldridge. Hell yeah, man! Hell yeah, dude, that'd be dope. Oh my god! Like I, soon come, man. Soon come. It will happen. Soon, happen. soon come. I like that. 100%. Soon come. I'm gonna steal that shit. And bring that over soon to come. America. Soon come. Soon come. We'll, we'll, Let's we'll go. Yeah, we say that a lot here. Here. Well, Sebastian, man, I don't, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Where we just did two hours and it flew by, man. Oh damn, I didn't actually realize. <laughs> Dude, I, I think we did longer because we started a little earlier. Yeah, we did actually. Damn. But, do man, it's it's been hope, uh, uh, such a pleasure chatting with you, man. Dude, like it's it's really cool. Hey, no worries. Thank you for thank you for listening and thank you for giving me this opportunity to you know to just chat about my work and also Hong Kong. It means a lot. Thank you. And thank oh, you for the faith that you've shown, like the support you've been saying. I'm like, oh, oh, me. <laughs> so I mean, you, hey, you got you really got to give credit to people when it's doing. You got to give credit to people while they're still alive, you know, because like that's one of my one of my favorite things or one of the things I hate about rap and music is that people don't care about them mm. until they're gone. And then it's like, not that you're going to oh, die yeah. or anything. That sounds kind of fucked up, but like, it's okay. <laughs> oh, it's oh, okay. No. <laughs> like, it's okay to tell someone, yo, you're doing awesome yeah. shit. So 
I'll be that person. But right, um, but Sebastian, if someone wants to like connect with you, I know you have like an interesting like little Discord group and stuff like that. Uh, how should someone like connect with you and reach out with you and stuff like that? Um, so on Instagram, I am at Seb underscore Xavier, X-A-V-I-E-R, as in Charles Xavier from X-Men. Um, so, I, uh, so that's my handle on Instagram. And I also have a Discord. Yes, I do. We've called ourselves the X-Force because, you know, again, going in with that whole X-Men vibe. Um, and the link to that would also be in my Instagram bio. Um, and yeah, those are the best ways to reach me and you can see my work. Oh, I've also got a website, sebzavier.com. That's probably the best way of finding my work in HD. Yeah. And, and I'm just going to interject. This is that I would highly recommend if you guys like his work and want to learn more, like the discord would definitely be the, the move because it's, it seems like such a discord is awesome. It's like a direct connection with mm. an artist or with the community of like-minded people. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that people mm -hmm. are using discord now, even though it existed in like the gamer uh, ethos for mm -hmm. a very long time. I think artists and people using it as like a private community is so cool. It's so cool. Yeah, man, hundred percent. I've always wanted to connect to my community a lot. And yeah, on, on the discord, we actually talk about, you know, behind the scenes, we talk about how I took this photo, you know, I do like little tutorials here and there or, or, or like, or even like review other photographers work when they submit it. So yeah, it's a very nice little family That's going epic. on. So be sure to check us out. Awesome. x-force let's X go <laughs> x-force x-force <laughs> all right guys well that's it for this one that's it that's the angle peace out hey thanks guys Woo -woo!